welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 4, Rowing Around in Rama Episode 8, The Shocking Revelation Concerning Cormac McArt From the Instructions of King Cormac O Cormac, grandson of Consett Cabra, what are the duties of a chief? and an alehouse. Not hard to tell, said Cormac. Good behaviour around a good chief. Lights to lamps, exerting oneself for the company. A proper settlement of seats. Liberality of dispensers, a nimble hand distributing, attentive service, music in moderation, short storytelling. A joyous countenance, a welcome to guests. Silence during recitals and harmonious choruses. O oh, Cormac, grandson of Con, said Cabra, I desire to know how I shall behave among the wise and the foolish, among friends and strangers, among the old and the young, among the innocent and the wicked. Not hard to tell, said Cormac. Be not too wise, be not too foolish. Be not too conceited, nor too diffident. Be not too haughty nor too humble. Be not too talkative nor too silent. Be not too hard nor too feeble. If you be too wise, one will expect too much of you. If you be too foolish, you will be deceived. If you be too conceited, you will be thought vexatious. If you be too humble, you will be without honour. If you be too talkative, you will not be heeded. If you be too silent, you will not be regarded. If you be too hard, you will be broken. If you be too feeble, you will be crushed. All this time we've been rowing around in Rama, but we've also been taking a wander through some of the other Imrov-like stories mm. about unintended voyages to the land of promise or the Isles of Women. Yes, and the story that we looked at last time of Tyg McCain was a particular gem, you know, that we weren't oh, expecting. It's becoming my favourite. Yeah, yeah, it was a delight to discover that one. But didn't want to go on voyaging around without exploring one of my favourite stories, mm -hmm. which is uh, Cormac's Cup. And this has been one of the stalwarts in my storytelling repertoire yeah. for years. In fact, uh, even longer than we've been working exactly. together. And that's, that's very <laughs> that's neither time. today nor yesterday. <laughs> but the trouble was, before I had an Isolde, I had to rely on extant translated versions mm. and retellings. And... There were some I used, like uh, Squires and Rolleston and so forth. Yes, both of whom published general collections of Celtic myth and legend. Same title, their books, two books, same yes, title. Yes, yeah, exactly. And uh, they're not exactly recent works, are No, they? they certainly aren't. I mean, you know, this is the, the first ventures of the 19th and early 20th century yeah. into these texts. But I suppose, but the most useful and readable version has mm. always been uh, Lady Augusta Gregory's Wonderful Gods and Fighting Men. Yes. Now, the general story. Yeah, now even I read this one as a child and I think probably got a lot of the general knowledge, if you like, about stories from oh, it. I'd still recommend it as mm. the best collection because it's just so uh, readable. Yeah. It's so well organised. Mm. And she gives us sources as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. And we have discovered, particularly with some of these middle into modern Irish tales, that she's actually a very reliable 
teller of the stories. Mm. And she's only telling the stories, really. She's not going into all the sort of fanciful notions of, of history. She was a folklore collector. Mm. Uh, a par excellence. She used to go round on her donkey yeah. talking to ordinary people. Yeah. She's always been one of my great heroes yes. or heroines. And, <laughs> you know, there wouldn't be people like Yeats without Lady Gregory oh, no. for absolute certainty. <laughs> but a very genuine ordinary person mm. and, and, and reliable as well. Exactly, yeah. For this particular episode, looking at the story of Cormac, we are using Whitley Stokes' edition and translation within Irisha text of it's Echtra Cormac, Adira that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the adventures of Cormac in the land of promise and um, and stokes as a, a good philologist does give us manuscript sources and um the main sources he uses are from the book of ballymote and the yellow book of lecan yeah. and these as manuscripts are about 14th 15th century but in terms of the language we're dealing with a middle irish yeah, text yeah. it's late middle irish so we're looking mm. at the 11th ish century that kind of time in terms of the language. There is a later version that I've come across. Yeah. Translated by uh, the, the other good old reliable Standish O'Grady. <laughs> well, except for some of his complicated sentence constructions. Oh, God. He, he doesn't know what a clause is for. <laughs> this took us a while to track down its origins. Yeah, it, it kept saying there was no manuscript source that he'd used. Yeah. Every list I found mm. said... Unknown manuscript. Exactly, exactly. Now, it's published as one of the transactions of the Ossianic Society. And this is 1850s. And again, they were specifically trying to publish texts around the stories of Fionn and the Fianna, the Fenian stories, as they termed them. And eventually, tucked away in his introduction, he, he says what the Irish sources are that he's using. And they are an 18th and a 19th century so not very version. old. Not very old Irish. at all. Yeah. The earliest date that could be given for one of them is going back to 1600, maybe. That's sort of the yeah. earliest linguistic date. But we're talking about the kind of modern Irish that a contemporary, like today, Irish speaker could probably understand by reading it. It would be certainly be less difficult than reading Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So these really are very modern tellings and the the story has changed significantly. It's yeah. why it's termed like a modern redaction rather than a recension. Uh, they're probably, I, su I suspect, collections of oral tellings. That would seem to be the most likely, all right. Um, and it is worth pointing out that even up to the 19th century and up to the time that O'Grady was publishing this, there was still the, the very last vestige of both a scribal and an oral tradition mm -hmm. of a very real kind, you know, not just the, the fella in the flat cap telling stories by the fire kind of tradition. Mm. No, last vestiges of the Bardic tradition. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's surprising oh, no, to think that it's, it's so recent as yeah. the mid-19th century. But, um, yes, unfortunately, I have more family involvement in yeah. this. My great-great-great-grandfather, Patrick Carmody, um, he collected a lot of material around Waterford, um, not least uh, the material of a completely illiterate, as in couldn't read or write, poet called Porrick uh, Ewaldoon, or Porrick uh, Weldon, um, who was composing poetry extempore, without writing any notes, um, that were still metrically, if you like, very close to classical bardic stuff, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it was very literate in that sense, in the sense of literary. Um, but also, my great-great-great-grandfather followed a sort of scribal tradition in creating manuscript copies, new manuscript copies, of things like Keating's History of Ireland, mm -hmm. um, which is part of, if you like, the traditional training for a scribe. 
So both of those things were still happening, certainly in County Waterford, mm. um, in the 1840s, 1850s. And after all, these are the stories we're talking about here, these modern redactions, are uh, really very much in the same class as stories of the Goblin Sir. Yeah. Or the Birth of Lou. Yeah, yeah. The oral Birth of Lou. I mean, if it wasn't, if we ignored modern or modern Irish yeah. tellings, we wouldn't have the Birth of Lou at all. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's certainly, it's not to be sneezed at, but... By the same token, it has become a different thing by this time. Mm. It clearly has been a living tale. And um, if well, you look at the saying. differences between yeah. the modern and the Middle Irish tellings, the story has altered. Yeah, well, we may be able to bring in bits of the new story, or the yeah. more recent story. Yeah. But it does prove that this was a story that went on being enjoyed and remembered in some form. Right down to not quite living memory, but, yeah. but pretty close. I think that's true, most especially of stories that are generally termed Fenian or part of the Fenian cycle. They're the ones that get told and told and told ah, again. And how again. old is Fionn? But that's another. <laughs> that's another series <laughs> which we've but, yet to get to. But but Cormac has always been a popular character. But we'll come back yeah, to that later. We will. When I came to read the Stokes text, mm. I could clearly see that there's a lot more than just the story of Cormac going to the other world. Yes, it? there certainly is. Um, it's part of a longer text, which is referred to often in English translation as the Twelve Ordeals of Ireland. But essentially, it's a text that looks at a kind of foundation for law, for the structure of society, but also reflects a shift of authority from the class of the filler, the professional poets, yeah. to the aristocratic ruling class. Well, I suppose there was a lot of change. In, we're talking about 11th century. A it's, lot of change happened at that time. Yes. I mean, for a start, you've got this sudden and massive Norman influence mm. and they're particularly on law yeah. and the role of the aristocracy exactly that's, what that's the major area that they came in and changed things on. yeah absolutely and it was a very profound change and the other sort of thread that we've picked up on a few times through uh, the episodes is that there was a shift in the nature of the Irish religious orders the European orders had more authority and influence. Within then Irish religious orders, there was less emphasis on the native traditions. And that's where we get the splitting off into separate bardic schools. So people who wanted to train as poets now no longer did it just through the monastic university system. Mm -hmm. They had to go to specialist bardic schools. Um, and that leads us to classical bardic poetry, which comes in early modern Irish. And of course, all that is also reflected in the language. Like I said, there's a late Middle Irish text. So that whole period between the 9th to the 11th or 12th century, yeah. it's all this kind of change is happening and yeah. in the language as well. And as we've said, that these changes are clearly visible in the different in Rama that we've looked at. Exactly. But I've said that more than once. Yeah, and that seems to be one of the main themes that has come up again and again in this series. Oh, good. I was a bit worried about all the preamble <laughs> to this story. Yeah. So it really is relevant to our discussions on Enrama. Oh, I think absolutely, yeah. Right, let's get on with the text. <laughs> well, it begins with an introduction to the famous and legendary king... Cormac MacArthur. You know, we yes. really need a fanfare there, don't we? I think we do a bit. Da, yeah. da, 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 da. Well, Cormac is so often referred to as the Irish Solomon. Um, he's very closely associated with, you know, wisdom. He's the archetypal king. Um, he makes also, all the right decisions. Exactly, exactly. Why he, is strong? Yeah, all the things that yeah. a king should be. 
Um, he appears in the sort of the annals and the king lists as a king around the third century um, in the common era. Yeah. Uh, so he... it's sort of pre-Christian Ireland, but post the dates of Christ, as yeah, it is usually yeah. put in the synchronisms. So he's right at that border again. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's always connected with the Fenian tales as well. He's even got himself tied up with that lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and not least of which is that uh, Gronia of the Fionn and Gronia fame is said to be Cormac McGart's daughter. So he's really linked in. Exactly. And that's the context in which O'Grady's version of the tale is told is part of the pursuit of Dermot and Gronia. He's very centrally associated as the originator of a lot of correct judgments. Mm -hmm. And particularly through a text like Chegosca Cormac, which are the teachings of Cormac, which we used at the beginning, which is like a sort of a handbook for how to be a good king. Um, but it's about making right judgments mm. and being wise, and that's where the story of his cup fits in as you well. Know, he's quite the Hammurabi of Ireland. Yes, it's a bit uh, a bit later than seven seventy two BCE. Yeah, which is rather. Yeah, but that's what Hammurabi does. It's always about right judgments. Exactly. This is what you do. This is here are some examples of the way it should be. Exactly. It's a paradigm of behaviour. Paradigm. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Cormac gets introduced in the text, doesn't yes. he? Oh, he's quite a sort of kingly archetype. Mm. Well. Once upon a time, king. Yes. Under his reign, the world was full of every good thing. There was mast and fatness and sea produce. There was peace and ease and happiness. There was neither murder nor robbery at that time, but everyone in his own and proper place. Yeah. So real once upon a time. Yes, yes. Also very much like the, the praise in bardic poetry. And at the beginning of our tale, Cormac's holding a very important meeting. Yes. And anyone who's anyone is there. Yes, there's a whole listing of more or less legendary kings. Not even necessarily contemporary with each other. Well, no, but then if we tried <laughs> to do some synchronisms, we'd get ourselves so tied up in knots, I wouldn't even go no. down that road. But some of those who, who are at this uh, particular gathering at Tara include Characters like Fiat and the Black Tooth, yeah. um, and Cormac Cass, who's the sort of ancestor founder of the Dol Coish. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got Fiat and Broadcrown. Oh, isn't he the one whose mother decided to give him brain damage rather than <laughs> have him born at a sort of less portentous moment? Yes, absolutely. Sat on the stone and squashed his head. Yes, for a whole day while she was in labour. And now that's a story that's also told of Concover McNessa. It's pretty daft, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but it probably tells you everything you need to know about Concover <laughs> and what his decision. And that's what was happening in Brick Crew. There were all these uh, legendary yes. participants. Yes, exactly. Anyone from this particular story cycle was at this meeting at the same time. It was very important. Yes. <laughs> and of course, Cormac's entrance, that really is quite something. Mm -hmm. He's magnificent. Yeah. I'll read part of the description. His hair braids were slightly curled or golden upon him. Around him was a purple mantle, a jeweled brooch of gold on his breast, a necklace of gold around his throat, and a girdle with gold of gems of precious stones over him. He was, moreover, shapely, fair, without blemish, without disgrace. You would have thought that a shower of pearls had been cast into his head. You'd think that his mouth was a cluster of rowan berries. <laughs> and that's only part of the description. Yeah, yeah. It goes on about the blades of his brows and yeah. goodness knows what. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a comment that he is the fourth most good-looking man ever to have lived in Ireland. In history. In history, exactly. Yeah. And he's fourth after Conroe MacEtherscale, after Conchover MacNessa, and Oingus, the son of the Dagda. Oh, Those yeah. the only people who ever looked better than he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit like one of these modern magazines where you have yeah. your lists and things. Yes, yes. Top um, ten most shaggable kings. <laughs> <laughs> Not 
about that. I thought you were going to say most shaggy kings. <laughs> that too. Anyway, these OTD descriptions, you know, again, they're really reminiscent of Brickland. Yeah, yeah. You remember the way Cahullan was described? Oh, yeah. Oh, the detail each, and yeah. the bling and exactly. everything. Exactly, and each hero more shiny than the last. It's not just Cormac. The other kings, they're dressed to the nines as well, aren't oh, they? Oh, yeah. There's a nice little note that I find amusing. It says that, of course, these kings wear their golden helmets while they're at a feast and only wear their crowns when they're in battle, which seems a little bit uh, foolish. Can you imagine all eating through the helmet? Yes. <laughs> all these over-the-top descriptions. Yeah. I think they indicate an oral source. Mm. You can feel that the, um, the the storyteller, if you like, is is really trying to create paint pictures for the listeners. Yes, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so why is this particular meeting so crucially important. Well, in the first place, this big meeting at Tara is supposed to be to lay down all of the rules and the laws that will govern Ireland for all time, that the laws laid down at this meeting are supposed to be the ones still in existence at the time of the mm -hmm. actual text. And it's also about establishing the entire structure and hierarchy for the whole society, which is so crucial to the functioning of the law. And I suppose at the time when this text gets rewritten, mm. it's a time of great change. It is. So yeah. it's saying, you know, that this began. Yes. Long ago. This exactly. isn't new. Yeah. This is the way they always do things. It's a legendary precedent for yeah, all of yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Now also, and in some ways more importantly, there is a theme here which is about removing some judicial power from the class of the filla mm -hmm. and uh, putting it in the hands of the kings. It actually says in sort of quoted speech that the kings could no longer understand the judgments that the poets were giving and so therefore they didn't understand why the poets should be given this position of making judgments. Um, it seems almost as though the language, if you like, that the poets were using had become obscure. Things like the legal maxims and the heptads. There's a lot of Rusk poetry in mm -hmm. the Shenachas Moor, which is one of the central law texts. And that by the time you're getting to late Middle Irish, this is getting into seriously obscure language. Mm. Um, and A very antique language. Yeah, exactly. And so it would seem to be, probably be unnecessarily obfuscating. It would be like as if um, lawyers were only speaking Latin. Yeah, yeah. That's... In a law court. Exactly. As if everything had to be yes. carried on in Latin, yeah. whether ordinary people could understand a word of it. Yeah. And they were refusing to translate it. Exactly. So exactly. imagine people yeah. arguing one way and another, mm. for and against. And yeah. the accused and the defendant haven't a clue what's going on. Exactly. So yeah, that yeah. is probably, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good uh, uh, comparison. And have I right. got it right that it was the poets who actually were judges? We're not thinking of poets like modern poets. No, the filler um, included all the professional jurists. Um, it was one of the sort of specialisations in your, your later training, you know, when you came to be an olive. Um, that law was one of the specific areas mm. of study. In this text, the kings don't understand why that's the case. They mm. think that poets should stick to writing poems. But why that they should have a status that's almost equal to the king's. Oh, absolutely. If not exactly equal to the king's. Yeah, and in certain cases, which would overrule the king's. And we've talked before oh, about have, yeah. how, in a way, there was this setup whereby the, the professional jurists would decide the judgment, but in order for it to be official, the judgment had to be given by the king. Mm -hmm. You know, but he was really only the mouthpiece. Exactly. Yeah, and that it was 
<laughs> well, it wasn't deemed fit that he should decide based on his own prejudices. You know, constitutional monarchy. Yeah, seems. yeah, well, yeah. Very similar. Very early constitutional yeah. monarchy. Yeah. So the meeting described in this text sometimes feels to me a little bit like a modern government, particularly the Irish governments of the last few decades, saying, "Why are we subsidising the universities? Sure, that's only for academics and for teachers, and they sure, have political power. Exactly. What do they know about political power. Exactly. They're not contributing to the wealth of the economy." Economy, therefore, they shouldn't be telling us what to do. You know, we should be telling them what to do. So you give it to this class of people who yeah. are, in fact, not qualified to do anything much. Yeah. <laughs> Except kinging. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say, earlier when I was talking about constitutional monarchy, yeah, yeah. that is absolute rubbish. It's not true. No. It's... Uh, I was just giving a, yeah. a, a, as a as a parallel. Yeah, yeah. But in fact, that the mm. early Irish kings were not hereditary were well, no. not effectively kings either well no so i mean they make that clear because yeah. it might have been confusing yeah well they, they were you know if you like regional aristocracy you're talking about an aristocrat who has um jurisdiction over about two thousand people mm -hmm. you know rather than someone who has jurisdiction over millions but they're olive yeah would have been equal with them well exactly because again it was the olive who actually knew all of the maxims had all the, the knowledge mm -hmm. that's needed to understand the law and also know the legendary precedents. And could talk to other olives from yeah. other tours. Exactly, yeah. Which the kings really couldn't talk outside their jurisdiction. Yeah. But yeah. the olives could talk to each other. Exactly, yeah. Right across the board. So mm. they were like a networking yeah. group. They were bound to know more than anyone else. Exactly, So yeah. diplomats as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They had many different roles. And yeah, obviously the, the aristocratic class were starting to get a bit edgy about that. Yes, that theirs wasn't the real power in many ways no. and suddenly you've got the these what seemed to them like old fuddy daddies mm. talking uh, uh some language that none of us talk yes anymore. yes and all terribly philosophical and abstract and can't yeah. see the relevance to what they want to do so they, they they're removing the power exactly so this yeah. is a major thing it is it is and it's representing uh one of those huge shifts that we were talking about earlier in the historical revelation this is pretty shocking <laughs> i would say Absolutely. but it is quite sad because now it's as if the magic of the irish stories mm. is always to do with words mm -hmm. and the shaping of words yeah. and the making of words and how uh, what you say shapes the world exactly and suddenly this is forgotten it, and yeah. lost yeah so yeah. the true irish magic mm is now lost. Yeah. And the other sort of major theme, I suppose, within this text is about social structure and that thing about everyone being in their proper place. Mm. And it sort of also means that people have authority only depending upon their class and on their profession. That it's sort of more splintered and that rather than the the poets who the writers of these texts think should only have jurisdiction over other poets rather than ultimate jurisdiction, it's only the aristocracy, only the kings who have that ultimate jurisdiction over Otherwise, everyone. over everyone. Otherwise, if you're part of the medical profession, it's a medical authority. If it's uh, poetry, it's poetic authority. If it's craftsman, it's a craftsman that's authority. It's a guild system. It is similar to a guild system, mm. all right. <laughs> I suppose that's the poets put in their place. It yeah. is, yeah. It's just, I keep thinking about this because in a way, this is a good thing. Yes. You know, yeah. if, I was just thinking back, you know, if, uh, I was in the courtroom and I oh, couldn't yeah. understand what was happening. Yeah. I'd object. Absolutely. Anybody would. Yeah. And yet I keep feeling that some terrible thing is happening mm, here. Mm. The, and 
if we go back to oh, you know series two of Moitura, yeah. when we were talking about uh, the the Dugda and the Morrigan, yeah. there's there's very little supernaturalism mm, in that. Mm. The magic is all in the shaping and making of words, the yeah. falling of the harp, yeah. the lowering of hills, but it's mm. all done through words and, mm. and uh, the magic of poetry. Exactly. Yeah. And once you lose that, and you still have a need for magic, yeah. a need for supernatural. Mm. Suddenly, what we're left with is a magic that is dangerous, mm. um, somewhat vulgar, yeah. and eventually demonical. Yeah, yeah, and um, sort of, sort of arbitrary as well. It yeah, becomes arbitrary. from outside. Yeah. it's not, it's not under your control. Yeah, in the early stories, anyone can do magic. Yeah, yeah, if they can speak the words. Yeah, Shinnan, whose great skill, you know, yeah. saves her people from the great wave. Yeah, it's all about the highest skills, yeah, the magic yeah. of words. Mm. I know we go on about this. Yeah, yeah, but it's but it is centrally important, and it's one of the. It's our big bias, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. Yeah, this is one of our major themes and biases that basically. Magic is poetry, especially in those earlier stories. And it's very, it's a noticeable difference between the quality of the old Irish stories. And once we get into this middle Irish and early modern period, suddenly magic is something very different and poetry is different then, too. Then, yes, there was, there, there was uh, divination, there yeah. were portents, yeah. there was a lot of shape-shifting. Mm. It's there. Mm. That that amorphous blending yeah. with the world you live in, that mm. you are very much part of it. Mm. But once you get to this stage, yes, it's magic wands, magic cauldrons, yeah. magic swords, yeah. and you have to get them from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're treasures. Yes. They become the treasures. Mm. And it's... I know that they, they, they do it... Well, no, I suppose even the four treasures... That mm. come with the Dodon, and yeah. you find that in the Lagavola. Exactly, yeah, it is part of the later tradition. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very interesting. It's hard to get at. Yeah, yeah, and we just love the early the magic of the word exactly. because we love poetry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we do. <laughs> so, all right, look, rant over. We ought to. Yeah, for now. <laughs> look, sum up mm. because we've been we've gone off on a, a side issue. Yeah, but what you're saying is that the poets. Have their have had their overall jurisdiction removed, yeah. and a kind of guild system is set up that were proposed to take its place. Yeah. Now, in terms of that idea, um, to try and get it across, this partly comes from uh, there's a reference in our text to a bunch of known law texts or certainly listed law texts. So and it's drawing them in as authorities. Exactly. Exactly. Now it includes ones that I'm familiar with, such as the lovely Guvratha Karadnia, which are the the false judgments of Karadnia, which actually covers a whole vast different areas of law and counterexamples. Um, it is, and it also mentions the Breath of the Now which we've mentioned that one. We before. have indeed. You know, which again, I think we only have fragments from that, but it's laws that relate to illness and injury and so on. Um, but I think that they have been reinterpreted in this, you know, middle Irish period. Um, so that rather than being seen as representing areas of the law, that each text is now understood as representing a group within society. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, there's a set of laws that applies to the medicals and there's a set of laws that applies mm. to the poets. And, and as we said before, so that uh, rather than, you know, a professional legal class dealing with the law as it applies to the whole of society, we now have the aristocrats, the kings with 
ultimate jurisdiction mm. over everyone else. Like this sort of flowchart. Yeah, yeah. This is very normal. It's recognisably it normal. Yeah, it is. And um, it's not quite as far as the divine right to kings, but it's certainly on the way there. It's certainly giving this ultimate authority to a hereditary monarchy. Mm. It's going towards ideas like primogeniture, you know, these Trying are quite to new. Establish yeah. some sort of justification for it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's paving the way, let's say, for yeah. a much more modern Norman-based law code. Quite different from Brickru or Maitura. Absolutely, yeah. We're getting here something which is really quite recognisable. Yes. Well, so to reinforce this social hierarchy, mm. the next thing Cormac does is applies it to the table layer to the Feast of Tara. Yes, and now this is the Tehmid Korto, which is uh, some often translated as the settling of the manor at Tara uh, as a text. Um, now, this is the feasting hall layout that mm. we're familiar with, is the diagram. Yeah, it's quite a well-known diagram. It is. We used it before in talking about Brickrew and the feast and so mm. on, and it will be, you'll be able to look at it on our website as well. But as well as uh, the seating plan for this party, um, Cormac also presents his guests with this full-sized sort of cauldron of abundance. Oh, to make sure they get the portions proper to the participants. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Sort of, but not quite like the Dagda's cauldron, is it? No, and I think that once again they've sort of turned things on its it's head. It's referring to the Dagda's cauldron. It is, but it sort of switches it so that, you know, it's not... A cauldron of abundance so much as a cauldron-shaped sorting hat. <laughs> yeah. So a wonderful free gift of whatever you want, want to get comes yeah. out of the cauldron is now for allotting what is appropriate to the cost of the receiver. Exactly. Well, that's a different thing entirely, isn't it? Oh, it, it? is, yeah. A long way from the ground cauldron, you know, that, remember the, the wonderful the cr- crater yeah. that was made a hole in the ground filled with porridge yeah. and the Dagda had to eat every scrap with yeah. a spoon large enough to lay two people in. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. even further from uh, what we were talking about with the Dagda's leather cauldron for making beer. Yeah. Now we are given the proper cut of meat that is due for every dignitary, not just the champion's portion. Oh, yep. Poets and kings get a thigh. I presume it means a thigh of pork or or beef or chicken, <laughs> and not someone from Thailand. I'm hoping either. Uh, interesting. They still get the same, even yes. though their status has been reduced. Yeah, they still get the cut of meat oh, of the yeah. same status as the king. Oh yeah. Um, queens get the haunch. Yes. <laughs> Young lords a shin bone. Yeah. Uh, not much meat on a shin not bone. Not much pickings on Especially that. Especially not if it's a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and charities get ahead, so they can keep an eye <laughs> yeah, out. Well. Okay. <laughs> and everyone gets a fork thrust. Which is not as painful as it sounds. <laughs> no, it's just a term that's used. Yeah. That everyone is you able to... You stick in your yeah, fork and then... You get something. It, Everybody gets something. Yeah. There's a certain amount of democracy involved. Yes, yes. But not much. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that mm. if you think about it, uh, if this... It isn't at all like the situation at, at, at uh, Brickroot Feast. No. I mean, now... If they had that cauldron, mm. it would make the decision for the heroes. Yeah, yeah. And we wouldn't even have a story. No. Which might have saved us a bit of bother. But... Oh, come on, it's a brilliant <laughs> story. All that chasing around the country, oh, yeah. refusing to give in, and Colin saying, no, I'm the champion. Yeah. And the other's going, oh, no, 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 no. don't believe you. Yeah. Do it again. Yeah. Oh, no, until he finally has to go into the beheading game. Yeah. It would be a great shame to lose of that story. with a, What did you call it? A cauldron-shaped sorting, sorting hat. hat. Yes. <laughs> Right, well, the next section of the text 
is t- entitled The Twelve Ordeals. Odd title. It is an odd title. And again, it's part of the, the title of this text as a whole. Um, now, the term that is translated as ordeal in this context is fear flathavan. Now, we've come across that oh, yeah, plenty of times before. Now, even here, Stokes does say that that's literally, he says, the truths of the kingdom. But we know that it's it's a bit more than that. It's the king's truth which is that if the king gives good judgments, then the land will be fruitful. After all, this is what Bresh lost by giving a false judgment. And then the country is plunged into famine. Yeah, this is this whole thing that gives us your wasteland in in the Arthurian cycle. The land and the king are one. Yes, exactly. That whole thing. It's cool. Yeah, it is core, absolutely. Natural dress is mark. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think in any other context, you would not translate fearful as one as ordeals. I suppose what it means is that here are 12 resources to support the making of good judgments. Yes, that's, I think, what's meant by it. But actually, what you've got is a real mixture of sort of old-style divinatory practices. Mm. Because when we say that things are based on the magic of the word, divination... Yes. And the uh, understanding of portents mm. is very important. Yes, but these are ordeals for determining truth and falsehood. Some of them are just, you know, really nasty tortures in order to try and determine someone's innocence. Right. There does now feel that there's a sort of reliance on magic and folklore mm. rather than the lore of the Olive's word. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's uncover some of these. Yeah. After all, Cormac's cup is one of them. It is. This is going to get somewhere. Yeah, yeah, we will get there eventually. <laughs> now, the first of these is uh, the collar of Moran McWine. Well, the first of his three collars. Yes. The collar is actually a call and uh, Moran is born with a call and his father, who's already had a problem of having several sons with cat heads. Well, it? yes, he's Katchen himself because he's got a cat's nose, but all, every <laughs> son that, that he's born has, also some, has a cat's nose. Well, some kind of blemish or other, which yeah. of course is a problem if you're trying to be Well, clean. he's a bit fed up with this. Yeah. So his father sends him to be drowned mm. because he says he just wants an unblemished son. This yeah. is a bit harsh. Yeah, yeah. But a, a man of the she tells his mother, look, don't actually drown him, just hold him under nine waves mm. and you'll see what you shall see. Yes. And uh, so he does and the call opens. Yeah. Because they think he's got no face. Exactly, yeah. If you can imagine that sort of a baby with a call over its head. I mean, it must be a very strange experience because, yeah, it covers it, his face. And it, and certainly calls have been known to be retained as having magical significance. Exactly. I believe that they are supposed to make people invisible. It's the original cloak of invisibility. Yeah. That's from memory. I haven't just checked that. Sure, yeah. But again, if you can imagine looking at someone with no face, that is a kind of invisibility, all mm. right. Um, but once this call has opened and sort of, hanging around uh, Moran's neck. He then promptly sits up and spouts poetry. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> my oldest son, I had a dream like that. The day after he was born, I dreamt that he'd been kidnapped by the socialists. <laughs> well, his father was a Marxist, mm. this is probably why. And uh, I go chasing after my new baby and I find him in a cave with all these um, uh, international socialists. And suddenly the baby sits up in his cradle, cradle and sings the international, <laughs> all the verses <laughs> and all the words. And I never knew anybody who knew all the words. Yeah, yeah. Everybody only knew the chorus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you are, you see. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't grown up to be a Marxist. Well, no. <laughs> or a king. Or a prophet, as far as we know. No. Um, anyway, this speech of Moring's, rather than of your eldest son's, uh, is listed as one of the three sort of neonatal speeches of Ireland. It appears in the triads. Um, but 
After this, then, the coal itself, the remains of the coal, are encased in gold and silver. It's made oh, of reliquary. It's a reliquary, exactly. And that in terms of the justice, it's, you put it around the neck of the accused and it will choke the guilty, but not the innocent. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, his second colour's quite, not quite so bleedy. No, it's not. It's a bit more kind of simple. In this one, Moran sends his fool into the she at Schlievenaman, which is down in Tipperary, and we've talked about plenty of times before. Oh, the one that's all on fire. Exactly, yes, oh. yeah. Uh, so he sends his fool in because he knows that they have some means of determining truth and falsehood. And he sees this wooden hoop that's used, and it's placed around the hand or foot of an accused person. And if they're guilty, then the hoop will kind of close over it and then sever the offending yeah. limb. Yeah, which is a bit grim. Yeah, of course, whether this connects with uh, the removal of hands for th- theft or yeah, so, yeah. Uh, which I think was Norman punishment. Mm. I don't know whether it, it occurred in Irish punishment. I don't know either, but it's a, it's quite a widespread idea that if someone's yeah, eaves, you cut off their hand. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also there's hints of the with the round the hangman's foot that we find in Hector and Hera. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So um, interesting echoes there, yeah. Now, there's one other thing. Mm. Uh, in the story of Mongan, of course, he also hears of a treasure in, yeah. in a fairy hill. Mm. But he sends his poet to get it. Yeah. This time it's a fool. Yeah. Is it saying something? I think it probably is. <laughs> now, the third collar. Mm. Now, this is very funny. Yes. Um, I think it's a later edition. Mm. He uh, has this letter or this epistle from mm. the most annoying letter writer in history, <laughs> uh, one Saul of Tarsus, yeah. who ends up as Paul. Yeah. And anyway, he's carrying this letter, which he puts around his neck, mm-hmm. and after that he can make no falsehoods. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's a really... <laughs> I think that's hilarious. It is, and it, it does so feel like an afterthought after those uh, other two, you know, much more mythologically-based um, mm. means of telling the truth. This does feel a bit uh, constructed. But it's worth pointing out that Morin is still he's quite an important sort of legendary figure. Not unlike Cormac, there are mm-hmm. wisdom texts that are attributed to him, such as the Oddacht Morin, which is known as the Testament of Morin. And it's one of, it's another text like the Czechoslovak Cormac of instructions of how to be a good yeah. king. So Morin is one of these again sort of mythological precedents within and the law. in a way, don't each of these stories have some reference to parts of his name? They do, yeah. They do sort of pun on right. his name and on his epithet of McWayne and so on. You know, yeah. as, as you might expect in, in any origin story or synthetic etymology, it's part of what's going on here. So the next one is um, Mukta's ads. Yes. Now, this is says that Mukta was a sort of legendary brazier. Um, and that he had an ads that was heated up in the fire, and then the accused would lick it. <laughs> <laughs> and if he was guilty, then, oh, his, horrible. then his tongue would be burnt, and if he was innocent, then his tongue wouldn't be burnt. <laughs> right. I would hope this was a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> if you speak a lie, your tongue will feel like it's on fire. Yeah. But, you know, it's very close to the power of satire yeah. to bring the guilty party out in horrible red lumps. Yeah, absolutely. And so, it, yeah, it feels, again, like it's a literalisation mm. of uh, something a bit more kind of sophisticated and subtle, let's say. Yeah, this this very detailed concept of satire. Exactly, yeah. Which was very, very carefully regulated. Exactly, so yeah. It's kind of mangling it, isn't it? It, it rather is. There's a, there's a good few on this list that I think have that quality to them. 
um, that you sort of feel like they didn't quite Don't get know what they're there how for it worked. Yeah. yeah, it's too abstract for. Yeah, yeah. it has to be made literalized. Exactly. Yeah. I'm reminded of Dr. Samuel Johnson kicking the chair at Barclay. Uh, Bishop Barclay and saying, is that real now? Are you telling me that's not real? <laughs> the next one is uh, Shenika's Lot. Yes. Do you now, want to describe how well, this all Yeah, I think as far as I understand, he would have these two lotteries, these mm. two um, pieces of paper. Yeah, or wood. Yeah. Or wood, yeah. We'll come to that in a minute. Mm. And um, he would throw them into the fire. Mm. Now, one was for the king, one was for the accused. Yeah. If the accused ones um, stuck to his hand, mm. then he was guilty. And yeah. if it went straight into the fire, yeah. he would be innocent. Yeah. Now, that seems like leaving the decision in the hands of the judge, which is... <laughs> yeah, literally. Well, uh, yeah. Um, uh, but again, we know that that is what these were trying to do. Mm -hmm. They're sort of trying to externalise and, you know, literalise the process of making a judgment. Um, now, we've met Shanika before, um, again, within Brickrew's Feast. Um, he was there as the sort of close advisor to uncover um, The wise man. Exactly. And, of course, the name kind of means historian. Yes. But Shanika also stands as one of those kind of legendary or mythological uh, predecessors for the law text. Mm -hmm. So I think that he's, in some texts, attributed with creating the Shenachus Moor, yeah. which is the great sort of pillar of, of Irish law. Here you can see exactly what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Now it's something you actually have to do. And yeah. That one's going to make someone innocent every time. It will, yes. Unless, <laughs> of course, it's, like it's, you say, in the hands of the person performing yeah, uh, yeah. the act. You it know? can be fixed very easily. It can, rather, yeah. Well, the next so-called ordeal is mm. the Vessel of Balvin. Yeah. But this is interesting because it's actually another version of Cormac's Cup itself. In it fact, is. it's identical. I think it could even be a sort of inspiration for our main story. Yes, yeah, it could well be. I will point out here, however, that it's not Balvin's vessel. It's actually his missus's. It's his wife. <laughs> because, Mrs. Balvin. Yeah, it's his wife that goes again. But, of course, the husband takes all the credit. Well, apparently she sees one day two fairy women joined by a chain of bronze mm. near the well. And they disappear under the well. Mm. I can dream about that too, but we won't go into that. <laughs> and the wife follows them. Mm. And, and as she goes down into the she mountain, just like Kanira, she finds this crystal vessel. And when she picks it up, it falls into three parts when falsehood is uttered. Mm. And it joins back together with truth. And she thinks, hmm, that's going to be useful. Yeah. And brings it back to the mortal world and yeah. gives it to her husband who uses it for deciding truth or falsehood. Yes. That is Cormac's cup. It really is. If you imagine all these objects used for ordeals like yeah. that, and you've got to situate, we've already got one. Exactly, yeah. Well, Murren gets three collars, so. Three collars. <laughs> so we've got the three collars, two cups of truth. <laughs> this story, though, really puts me in mind of a couple of incidents from the stories of Aideen. Um, though the way the two fairy women are joined by a chain of bronze. Now, there's two, actually, I've just remembered, that when Lee Barn and Fond show up oh. to seduce slash beat up Cuchulain, Lee Barn, who we met last episode. Yeah, they're joined together by a chain. It's not come. uncommon. It's not. And we, we did also have it in Aideen with the 50 Aideen lookalikes at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all, each pair is joined by a chain. And you often see it as birds, that there's pairs of birds There's something about together. birds and chains. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it went through my mind originally that it was one of the, maybe a misunderstanding from a continental symbol of Ogma. Yeah. Who oh, yes. was joined, you know, yeah. the, the, the tongue, to, tongue to the chain. Yes. And it was meant to be a, a representation of eloquence. Yes. Or of tongue piercing. <laughs> Okay, I think it's a misunderstanding <laughs> of a drawn image. Yeah, yeah. But I 
although eloquence would be useful here, mm -hmm. I actually don't think it's connected. No, there is obviously just some very specific image that has to do with other world women, particularly sometimes in the shapes of birds, birds and chains, and they're joined, Make what you like joined by a chain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the other thing that uh, reminded me of Aideen is. Um, that episode where she appears at the beginning of Togol for the Dordarga, the Dordarga's yeah, yeah. hostel, which we where, haven't done yet. Yeah, where she is bathing at a well and she has this beautiful bowl and it's got like inlaid, I think, metal figures of birds chasing each other around and so on. And she introduces herself as Aegean and so on. Um, so those are kind of the images that mm. reminded me. And of course, Aegean is the other half, so to speak, of Mither. He is this other world king of beneath the earth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, and he is a judge. Exactly. He's always his name means judge. Exactly. Yeah. But big thing about this. Mm -mm. I, I, I want to talk about this later, so we'll yeah. come back to it. We later. will come back. In to fact, it. we'll come back to it in another episode. Exactly. But, yes. Uh, yes. For <laughs> now, there's this other one. What three dark stones? Oh yes. Now this is good fun. Um, you have these three special stones very folklore it one. is <laughs> and you go and you get a bucket and you fill it up with blackness oh bog water coal dust yeah. anything you can find that's black and throw the stones in yeah. sounds a bit like some of those sort of halloween games where you have mm -hmm. to put your face in a bowl of flour that kind of thing because you or get put your face in a bowl of bog water exactly and... yeah and so... pick out it's a stone you know <laughs> oh no we won't introduce that one no no well <laughs> no, 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 no we won't <laughs> At any rate, there are these three special stones and they're put into the the blackness, the bog water and so on. And then the accused draws one out. And if it's the white stone, he's innocent. If it's the black stone, he's guilty. But if it's the speckled stone, then he's half guilty. You know, that's interesting because it's just struck me that it could be connected to the Scottish law where you've got this ver uh, verdict of not proven. Yes. So you can be guilty, innocent, or not proven. Yeah. And yeah. that, I believe, is unique. It's not an English law. Yeah, it's, and Scotland, of course, has had its, managed to maintain its distinct legal system uh, from the United Kingdom. Um, and I would place money on it sharing origins with the Irish legal system. So, you know, it could well be a little insight into that. But also these three colours, this black, white, and speckled, that also puts me in mind of the colours of poetry. Where yeah. you can have praise, satire, and then the speckled stone is, it's called speckled, speckled poetry. poetry. Yeah. yeah. Where, and this specifically relates to the process of a poet giving notice that he's going to make a legal satire against someone. And we've talked about that on several occasions. We have, yes. So just as sort of a brief reminder that it was the poet's ability to make legal redress if someone had broken a contract with him. Um, and of course, you have to sort of notice that you will make a satire, but leave the accused the uh, opportunity to make things right before they get satirised. And so the notice when it's served has to say what the satire will be made about. Which is, if you like, a, a blame. Exactly. But in order not to prematurely satirise, the poet then has to add a line of praise. And that's speckled. It's got praise and blame in it to sort of balance each other out so you're not accused of actually doing the damage before the pro you know before, before the, the legal, legal process legal actually process. happens exactly yeah and of course you know satire uh the most extreme forms were i think probably literally believed to bring 
uh, the satirised person out in lumps. Well, a satirised, satirisation of a king could take him off the throne. Oh, absolutely. Or Again, a leader of yeah. any kind. We call them kings. Yeah, like yeah. The elected chieftain or leader. Yeah, well, you know, when we're talking about kings, often the read to us is over 2,000 people, as we mm. said, you know. So think of it slightly yeah, smaller it, scale. This know. is why the word king is often misleading. It is, yeah. But we yeah. go on doing it because we're familiar with it. Exactly. But they're really the elected chieftains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aristocratic elected Of course, they have to come <laughs> from the right family to begin with. But, you know, once again, this we have an echo here of the older legal processes that were in the hands of the Philip, the poets, mm-hmm. um, and possibly some divinatory practices in there as well. Yeah, well, so satire is central to so much. Yeah, and yeah. And the poets, you know, divination and satire are absolutely an inspiration. Yeah. Are the basis of, of their legal judgment. Exactly. And suddenly, yes, I suppose if you've lost this, it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit in with canon law. Exactly. And yeah. so it's it's becoming so obscure. Yeah, yeah. That suddenly, well, what do you do? It means picking a stone out of a bucket. Yeah. And somehow God will provide the truth and you'll get the right one. Exactly. exactly. Uh, it's a very different way of working. It really is. So the next one is um, the cauldron of truth. Now that sounds good. It sounds promising, all right. Uh, but I'm afraid it's a little bit more mundane than that. It describes a, v- a cauldron which is made out of gold and silver. And it's filled with water and then the water is boiled. And the accused sticks their hand in boiling water. And if it comes out unscathed, then they're innocent. Right, so yeah. heavily biased in favour of guilt. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, surely this is another tool of divination mm. that's been literalised. It sounds like it. And what I find interesting is that this section of the text groups the casting of lots, mm. the cauldron of truth, and one we haven't looked at yet, the waiting at an altar, yeah. as specifically ones that were used in pre-Christian times. Yeah. So it's aware that, that divinatory processes yeah. were the old way, Exactly, as it were. yeah. Um, but not but now these physical ordeals. Yeah, it's it's in. it seems to have recast those sort of divinatory practices as the sort of physical ordeal. But I can't think of any example in the stories where a physical ordeal is said to determine truth or falsehood. No, I mean it's usually ordeal by combat, which is a different thing and not not brought in here. Well, it's I think it's specifically excluded in this text, yeah, in fact, because that's going to happen anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's a bit different. I don't think the beheading game. I think was a bit different. I think yeah, that's that that's a special case. <laughs> it's not really surprising that they are now misinterpreting, if you like, means of divination as a physical ordeal. They've just got rid of the poet's role in uh, making judgments and of course that includes the poetic sort of divination of Imbos Forestner which is the kind of inspiration extempore composition of a poet Mm. which is based on all of their training their knowledge their skill Mm. but is a way of kind of getting at truth Mm. you know and something I hope we're getting across that we're not talking about poetry as expressing yourself and your feelings we're talking poetry is effectively uh, a thoughtful, knowledge-based form of philosophy. Yeah, it, we yeah. could really use the word philosophy. We could, but, but that would equally be misunderstood. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's closer. It's poetry is closer to sort of, as it were, f- philosophic outpouring rather yeah. than just entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. Where there's no teenage angst involved in this. No. Put it that way. <laughs> you know, we now use the word poetry in a completely different exactly form, and we we sometimes use it meaning. You know, sort of intellectual pursuit and philosophy and it's it's worth reminding our listeners as well that the term filler which is used for a poetry for a poet originally means a seer 
Yeah, you know, yeah. so that that is still part of of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. it's just I suddenly thought mm. that as long as we're being clear, because it's, it's quite difficult. It is, yeah, it's a difficult idea. But what's happening now, I suppose, is that instead of this intellectual process, mm. what they're doing is just subjecting people to pseudomatical torture. Yeah, yeah. Um, if God is the only source of truth. Judgment is in the hands of God, mm. but this means they're demanding a miracle every time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, usually that sort of miracle of you know surviving some someone being put to death or tortured, that's usually reserved for saints. And how is an ordinary person going to have a hope in hell? You know, yeah. of of escaping the fire, so to speak. Oh, as I said, it's weighted heavily in favour of guilt. Yeah. Um, I suppose in wealth. Yeah, and privilege. But you know, this does seem to happen. In most kind of major religions, just as an example, you know, both Judaism and Islam are founded on these ideals of truth and of learning and wisdom. That's very much at very the heart. Very high ideals. Absolutely. You know, and, but what happens and to those And it's still ideas? there. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, even the ancient Persian, mm. uh, just because I was looking at that, I mean, that was based absolutely on the importance, the light of truth. Mm. And hunting. Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and in fact, to the point where slavery is impossible mm. because it damages the ability of, of someone to tell the truth yeah, yeah. and to pay their bills. Yes. Yeah. But that's, you know, yeah. that's part of honour. Yes, but it's again. You so, cannot have the truth of honour if yeah, you're a slave. Yeah. And I, I think that's quite injustice in mm. comparison. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, so if this is such a common ideal among so many cultures, what goes wrong? I don't know. It's, I've been considering this question quite a lot mm. recently while we've been involved in our Enroma explorations. I've been mm. trying to write an article on this very subject called mm. Other World Underworld. Mm. But it's a bit like trying to study the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be, you know, you can't expect the history of religion and why there's monotheism yeah. and a whole lot. Yeah. But it's interesting tracing it through. Oh, so yeah. I think I might, you know, trying to capture those moments of significance. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's worth putting an article, though, you know, it's many learned people have written yeah. books on the subject. Yeah. And I'm just playing around with the surface. Yeah, it is vast, all right. Yeah. But I, I think I'll try and finish it. Mm. Well, the next ordeal mechanism mm. is the old lot of Shen. Yeah, now we've got casting lots again. Um, in this one, there are three lots. There's one for the accused, one for the king, but this also has one for the olive. If the lot of the accused floats, then you're it's cast innocent. into water this time, yes, not cast, fire. Exactly, into water. And if your lot floats, then you're innocent. So what were they casting? Stones? Well, <laughs> so they'd sink. <laughs> Interestingly, no. The, the term for a lot or for a lottery in Old Irish and right into Modern Irish is crancher. And that literally means the sort of putting or casting or throwing of wood. Tally comes into mind. Yes. Wooden tallies. Yeah. Whether this is where it comes from. Mm. But I suppose that wood, obviously, if wood thrown into water, yes. this one is going to produce a almost an innocent verdict every time? Yes, exactly. So it's a, a bit more favourable toward uh, for your chances. <laughs> God, I've just had a thought. Mm. Do you think that this is the origin of the Scottish sport of tossing the caber? <laughs> Can you imagine someone going, yeah, I wonder if we're going to have good crops this year. I don't know, go and throw the tree. Yeah, pick Whoops. up a tree and throw it and see what happens. <laughs> one for the olive, one for the king, yeah. one for the goose. <laughs> I think that would be taking visualisation 
a bit too extreme. Sorry, I, I, that's the silly image that came into mind. Yes, yeah, no, in this case, crown is just a little bit of wood. <laughs> right. You can do it with a twig, it's a bit like poo sticks. Poo sticks! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, now I know next time we play poo sticks off a bridge, we yeah. know this is an ancient form of divination. Exactly. But this is the thing, if, you know, it seems so clearly to be a kind of a divinatory thing rather than a just determining someone's guilt or innocence. Because if it's just about the guilt or innocence of the accused, then why do you have the other two lots for the king and the oath? Yeah. I don't get that. You know, it doesn't They're seem to make stuff. sense. Well, it's it really the same does. all the way through. Exactly. These are ancient systems yeah. whose real meanings have kind of been obscured. Exactly. It backs yeah. up. It's all gone a bit too obscure. Yeah. Nobody yeah. knows why we're doing any exactly. of this stuff anymore. Yeah. 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 It's tradition. Yes. <laughs> well, the next one is a, a bit of a mishmash. I mean, this is called, this is Lucta's Iron. Yeah. And uh, Lukta, says, the wizard, goes to Brittany, which is probably Britain, and mm. sees wizards using a lump of hot iron, iron to distinguish truth from uh, falsehood. And he yeah. goes, oh, that'd be good. I'll yeah. take it back to Ireland with me. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that Lukta was, isn't he one of the four craftsmen? He's a yeah, carpenter. Exactly, he's the carpenter. Yeah, I can't tell a carpenter, but the difference between a carpenter and a brazier. Yeah, Mind exactly. you, I've had children doing exactly the same thing. There's a story in which three woodcutters go into a wood and one mm. of them says, Oh, I'm a good carpenter. I'll cut down this tree and make a ship that sails on land. And, mm. and the, I said to the children, And what does a carpenter do? And they probably said, He lays carpets. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So yeah. now, the, uh, yeah, the, Luchter, Luchter, the, the, the carpenter, carpenter is a brazier. Yeah. Well, I wonder whether there's something about the law texts in here, because we mentioned the Breath of Dienkecht earlier, the judgments of Dienkecht. And when we were looking at the craftsmen, I was talking about, you know, the listed texts um, of the Breath of, that are attributed to the four craftsmen. So there was Breath of Dienkecht, Breath of Gaifnan, uh, Breath of Cradnacaird, and the Breath of Luchtene, which are the judgments mm. of Luchter. Now, originally we can assume that they were regulations about sort of carpentry, you know, wheelwrights, shipwrights, anything to do with wood. But I wondered whether this text had already been lost by this Middle Irish period. So mm. again, they only knew the title and that it was one of the craftsmen, craftsmen. but didn't know the specifics anymore. Mm. Last one, well, last but one, yes, <laughs> is waiting at an altar. We've yeah. already mentioned that as it was it's cited as being one of the definitely pre-Christian ones. Yes, yeah. And this is quite a nice description. Essentially, you had to go to an altar, which I assume is sort of a stone somewhere, you know, oh, yeah. a significant stone. Significant stone, stone yeah. yeah. And that the uh, the accused would walk nine times around this stone altar, and then there would be a poet there who spoke an incantation over some water, and you had to drink the water. If you were guilty, then you would come up in blemishes from this. Um, but I think it's so interesting that the key is really the poet's incantation. Mm -hmm. So once again, you have the words of the poet, bringing up physical blemishes on the face of the guilty, just like with the process of satire. Now, in this section, it accredits this practice to one key Queen Vrethek, um, Queen Vrethek being, you know, sort of good or beautiful judgments. Mm. Um, and this is one of those stories that I love. He, stu he was studying with Fenius Farsad in, I think, Greece or somewhere like that. Supposed to have created the Irish language. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He's the one who's accredited with taking the best bits from every other language in the world <laughs> and then making Which Irish. Which explains why we call it the spelling is a nightmare. Yeah. So Key was, was one of his uh, students. But on his way back to Ireland, he stopped off in Israel. <laughs> 
and studied the law of Moses. And then he brought that back and gave it to the tools of Dardanon. And that, if you like, shows that the native law system is true and just because it's based on the law of the Bible. Now, there's a bit of retrofitting. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but there is something very interesting about this. I mm. mean, waiting into adultery is specifically mentioned. Yeah. And you know that one is recognisable to the current day. Yeah, yeah. Because it really sounds like a pattern at a well. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe you better explain we, we what better, a pattern is. Because yeah. it may be familiar to us, but it's, I wouldn't have known about it before I came here. Yeah. It's thought that, well, it's, I think, generally accepted that it was originally patron or patron mm -hmm. um, but it's a visit to a holy well which goes on all over Ireland to this day and at each one um, for one there's a specific time of year when the mass will be said at the holy and well. And a specific ritual. Exactly and it has to do with going often walking around the well uh, or walking around some other you know, specific like object or, yeah, or stone. There's lots of stones mm -hmm. involved in a lot of these and then often it also involves the water from the well, obviously, although... Drinking the water from the well or, or yeah, pouring the water from the exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. And doing specific and sometimes strange and unrelated things. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. And these, these go on, as I say, to this day. And oh, every yeah. well has its own ritual. Its exactly, own its own pattern, yeah. I mean, for instance, uh, oh, the, we talked about Bridget's well. Yes, yeah. Where you go on a certain pattern around this well. Yeah. And each of these different stones, yeah. you do a different thing in order to get a blessing yeah. for a different part of the body. Exactly, yeah. So you've got the waste stone and the and the, uh, the eye stone yeah. and the back stone and, and the hoof stone, stone. <laughs> <laughs> for your hooves and uh, or you may leave little votive offerings at the well drinking water was very much part of it but people oh, don't yeah. tend to do that quite so much not so much and I'd say also that these days because it's done in the context of a mass then that's the water that's used for blessing yeah. and, and, and then unfortunately and so instead of leaving uh, votive offerings yeah. you know you, you would leave a little ribbon on a tree which mm. would uh, disappear as, yeah, as your yeah you know, as your wish, wish came true, basically. Yeah. But uh, nowadays, unfortunately, this is replaced by time bits of plastic bags or a barbed wire. Exactly. Yeah. doesn't have the same... No, no. doesn't have the same effect at all. No. But, I mean, one of our local wells, one of yeah. our favourites, just describe that one, exactly. Lasser's Well. Exactly, Lasser's Well, which, again, we, we talked about this way back in Series 1, when we were look, looking for Bridget and so on. But with Lasser's Well, yeah, it has to do with... You actually, I think, walk anti-clockwise around the well... Um, but there's all kinds of bits, like there's mud from a particular bank, which is supposed to have healing properties. Yeah. There used to be a tree, which is now gone, yeah. which had coins That's hammered, hammered, into, hammered it. into it. There is this strange kind of stone altar table beside it as well, which has a sort of a round stone, a bull on top of it. But you can crawl through the legs of this stone table in a figure eight, and that's supposed to cure backache. I've seen people doing that, yeah, you know, yeah. in, and that was, you know, really very recently. But right around the well, it is full of, you know, I've seen asthma inhalers. I've seen, you know, baby dummies. Yeah. I've seen biros, which I assume are for people with exams, you know. So it is just such a live practice. And every locality in this country will have a local well with its pattern. Yeah, and it really does go back to these... Very, very early yeah. practices that we're looking at here. Exactly. This is waiting at the altar. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, there is some talk, though it's not talked about much, the bull on top. Yes. Oh, yes, and last as well. Yeah. You know, that, that many of these stones mm. on altars, if you turn them one way, they're for blessing. Yeah. Uh, but if you turn them the other way, they're supposed to be for cursing. Exactly. But yeah. people don't actually 
talk well, about it much. No, they don't just do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But again, you sort of you wonder about the the official proclamation of a satire, you know. Yeah, and also why every so often the stone just disappears and then comes back again. Yes, <laughs> somebody borrowed it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's probably not fair, but <laughs> yeah. it, 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 these are general. About oh yeah, but but you know, it's the fact that they're so live and that mm-hmm. even without talking about it, people do quietly go and do their patterns around whatever well is local to them. And there's one in Sligo that makes you good at football. And that one is Tubborn and Malt, uh, <laughs> which is often um, translated as the well of the altar. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, I think that's very much what we've got here. But in the description in our text, once again, it's the words of the poet, I think, that are key here. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it says that you drink the water and that will bring out your blemishes then but i think that this is much more about the power of the poet to speak the truth mm-hmm. again that sort of gradually gets lost yeah if we're sort of summing up this mm. weird idea of ordeals yeah um in essence it's sort of now leaving the outcome to the hand of god yeah and depending on a miracle yes yes but it's not unlike uh that process of putting up your oars in the imrov you know and and leaving where you go to the will of god it also shares a lot with the punishment of being set adrift yeah. which we met in the particularly the imrov megasaurus mcgriagla um because in that there was the punishment of being set adrift on yeah. the ocean and then God made a different judgment than the people had, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it, it very much is that thing of, you know, put it in the hands of God, you know. So it strikes me that the, the poets and the, the poet philosophers mm. were, it was bothering them because they were sort of uh, being treated as if they were God. You know, well, they were, yeah. their, their judgments, we can't have that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because God has to make decisions. Yes, yeah. But also I think that there is the sort of the aristocratic classes yes. getting edgy, you it's know, as political well. It's political and... Is. But it's all yeah. part of the same thing. Exactly, yeah. You know, the aristocrats under God. Yeah, yeah. And the church under God. Exactly, yeah. But who are the poets under Yeah, them? yeah. Because they're not under God. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that interests me is about the same time mm. that in England, Henry II, around the late 11, 1160s, 1180s, yeah. is definitely trying to get rid of ordeals in England. Yeah, ordeal yeah, by trial, fire, yeah. ordeal by water and so forth. Yeah. And he is trying to bring in judgment by peers. Yeah. He's also fighting against canon law, yeah. um, which leads to the whole Beckett uh, phenomena. But... Um, it, it's interesting that, yes, there, there's this backup for ordeals at the same time. That really brings in what we're talking about. It is a kind of transition from native to normal and, of course, canon law. Yeah, yeah. As and we've seen in the Imrama. Exactly. But it's a contrast, I think, to the earlier uh, relationship between native and canon law. Um, because there is that sort of wonderful story about how when St. Patrick came to Ireland, he examined the native law system and anything in that that directly contradicted canon law was thrown out, but everything else was kept. And yeah. so you have this kind of sense of a synthesis, that there is this agreement between the native practice and the canon practice. But it seems that at this point, there's a split, you know, yeah. that it's suddenly the native practices are not seen as being in tune with the canon law or church authority, yeah. you know. And as I think we said earlier, you, this is where you start to get the splitting off between the poets and the church. Mm. You know, just one thing I, I I sort of feel that we haven't said mm. when we're talking about this these philosopher poets, yeah, and their way of dealing with them. Yeah. People have the impression that the further you go back, mm. the more irrationality and superstition there is. Yeah, and that's just not 
so. I no. Mean, progress is not linear. No. You know, and when you get down to this medieval period that we're moving into yeah. now, post-Norman, yeah. I always think that the medieval period begins with the Normans. Yeah. I know it's defined differently. Yeah, depending yeah. On who you are and where you are. Mm. But just from there, yeah. the, it, you suddenly get this period that is so full of, it's rife with superstition. Oh, yeah. It has a terrible fear of science. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's this terrible dark period of the Crusades. Which yeah. I know when I was over in Jordan, I kept apologising for it. <laughs> um, you know, and magic becomes prevalent and yeah. disconnected from philosophy and rational thought. Yeah. The natural philosophy seems to have gone. Yeah. It's a shift that we met before when we were comparing the, the way this, if you like, the, the magic of the word was used in, in, in Moitura. In Moitura. But how that changed by the time we got to the children of Turin. Which is, again, a telling of Moitura. Exactly. Yeah. But in that, it's full of your magic objects. It's full of, you know, sort of hit something with a magic wand and, and well, make so it happen. The whole story is about going and collecting a load of magic objects. Exactly. Who yeah. needs to fight off the Fodera? Exactly. Well, so, he doesn't need that in the text. No, exactly. And so, yeah, it's this externalisation of the power, you know, and putting it outside the individual and also, you know, sort of slightly more arbitrary kind of kind so of. So it's magic. a loss of confidence, isn't yeah, it? The yeah. people have no longer confident in their intellectual power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And need outside agency to yeah. tell them what to do. Yeah. When you look at the medieval, the, those wonderful medieval cathedrals yeah. all over Europe. Yeah. And these these wonderful Gothic cathedrals yeah. with their soaring architecture and mm. their stable. They're magnificent. Mm. But in some ways they're places of darkness and superstition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, I keep on getting the sense that, you know, uh, this is very much a time of earthbound thinking, if you like. You know, yeah. that everything has to be terribly practical. You know, if you can't kick it, it doesn't exist. You know, unless it's God and he just works by magic. You know, it's this real kind of, no one seems to be thinking it through for themselves. Yeah, and yet the whole Hellenistic period, yeah. all over the known world yeah, the time, yeah. was one of thinking for yourself. Absolutely, That's yeah. what created monotheism, in a way, was yeah. the need to think for yourself. Mm. And then it is totally dissipated. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that that's a huge subject, and that is, my head is going all over the place. But nevertheless, it seemed to be the, the need to have a personal stake, yeah. rather than the stake of your whole race exactly yeah there are just a few other bits of kind of really fascinating information yeah. before we actually come to the story of how Cormac got his cup yeah it is at the heart of it the really text. Is. yeah but there's a, a few things that are said to have been decided or laid down in this big assembly at Tara that uh, Cormac has called and the first is the establishment of kind of major fairs and assemblies the Oinuchs and they are the feast of Tara, which is at Samhain, uh, the Feast of Taltu, which is at Lunasa, and the Feast of Ishnuk, which is at Bialtana. Um And there was also then a sort of an uber feast, the, the major Tara festival and gathering, which was to take place every seven years. Mm. And that was for, if you like, creating new laws that could be promulgated across the whole land. Yeah, and this is where all this starts. This is quite uh, well known. Mm. The feasts of exactly. when these important things happen and yeah. the Feast of Tara. Yeah. Oh, but go on, talk about the eight places where legal killing is <laughs> yes. takes place. And that is weird. Yeah, well, the, they also are said to set down eight places across the entire island uh, where you can kill someone and not be subject to sort of retribution of the law. Now, in the list, um, I'm amused to discover that it includes Orth Cleath, which of Dublin. course is Dublin. <laughs> 
Um, and it also includes the Dorkeith Man, which are the two breasts of Anu, the mountains down in Kerry. I don't think it's talk about, you know, just unlimited slaughter. No. It's very, it's more specific. It is, it is. It specifies that, you know, this is where someone can take, if you like, a retributive killing or, you know, something that's part of a blood feud can Mm. take place at one of these designated areas and then they're not going to be subject to this murder. is the trial by combat it is you this, see this yeah. is why it's excluded because mm. there are eight places in yes. the country where trial by combat is allowed yeah but i think that it's not precisely the trial by no, combat it's more but, fighting a duel it's yeah, more yeah. you know cr- uh, guns at dawn sort of thing but in a know. way that's the equivalent of trial by combat yeah, because yeah. trial by combat is you appoint your your, your champion. champion i'll appoint mine and we'll see which one wins. and whoever wins and is... that's basically a duel exactly yeah but interestingly enough, when we were talking about the patterns of the world, mm. this is another thing which has continued down, I have to say, yeah. till almost modern times. Yeah, yeah. There were certain places set apart yeah. for faction fights. Yeah. Now, you better explain what faction fights are. Well, it is a bit hard to explain. They're kind of, you know, eternal family feuds, effectively, mm. you know, that, that happen in specific areas. Brendan Connelly used to catch me whenever I was in uh, Trinity College and tell me about how in the North Kerry faction fights the Carmody women would always hurl stones using their knickers as a sling. (laughs) 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 So yeah, they were sort of regular, you know, extended family punch-ups, basically. Until comparatively recently, there was almost a blind eye Oh, yeah, yeah. As long as they happened in the places designated yes. for them. There's one not far away from here called Playbank, yeah. and yeah. that was a known faction fight. Exactly, yeah. But I, I think that they were probably also set at particular times. There is a story that I like, which again relates to Lasser, that there was a group of fellas from one of those factions who were trying to join Maguire's big march all the way down to Kinsale. This is from mm. 1798 when they were getting help from abroad. Sullivan Bear. Yeah. Um, but this particular group realised that they were setting off and they were going to miss the faction fight that happened around Lasser as well. So they turned around and went back again. But the other sort of northwest um groups yeah. uh, that, that went down were then ambushed I think at Battlebridge yes and yeah. there was a ma- huge massacre that went on and so this local group you know was basically said, they went back for the faction exactly fight. yeah their but lives were saved that you're on your way to the greatest battle yeah. at the time this important thing and yeah. all you know, there's a free island oh sorry we can't we've got exactly. to go back to the faction exactly, fight exactly yeah which is just what I'm talking about yeah 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 so you see some of these continuations yeah are yeah. really interesting yeah and they yeah. go back a long way they do well back to uh, Cormac's big powwow at Tara uh, another thing that was to be done at these seven yearly assemblies was essentially to establish the standing army for the country and to appoint the 50 kind of battalion leaders and this is very much a legitimization and a regulation on the Fianna. That's where they get connected with Cormac. Exactly, it mm. mentions uh, Finn McCool or Urbachskina um, by name in this section. So that's another one of the duties of this assembly. Now the last thing that it says about this specific one uh, with Cormac and Fiona Blacktooth and uh, Cormac Castle and all the rest of them is that it says it was here that Cormac's Psalter was compiled um, and it says that this is a text that does all of the synchronisms and all of the genealogies uh, which mm. as we've seen before was a big part of this They're actually put sort of into writing Irish, exactly point. that it was about putting it down in writing but I can't really find any text that 
or any reference to a text that could be called Cormac Salter or Salter Cormac, I wondered whether it might be a conflation or a confusion with the Sonus Cormac, which is Cormac's glossary, but that's a different Cormac. That's mm. Cormac of Cullinline, who was a sort of a more historical 9th century bishop king of Cashel. And of course, it's his glossary that has caused so much damage down the years, because there he is, a Christian bishop of the 9th century, saying that Bridget was a triple goddess of the pagan Irish, um, without any actual evidence, therefore. That, it was just know, what was thought at the time. Exactly. All it does is it fixes a period where these um, where these things, things were thought. Were thought yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, well, it, it's developing a, what we call a compacted layer. Exactly. Yeah. Or information. Synthetic yeah. etymologies. There's a lot yeah. of what goes on. Yeah. yeah. But it is one of the compacted layers. And yes, it was this other Cormac, the Bishop King of Cashel, that's responsible for a lot of that. So I wondered whether that might be you know, a, a misapprehension of our Middle Irish authors. Maybe we should also touch on the story of Cormac's sword, though yeah. I know it's not directly related to the episode, but it has got something of interest in it. Yes, it certainly does. And it is included in this same text about the so-called 12 ordeals, although it comes at the end. Just before we go on, I might say we've been joined by a lawnmower outside the window. So apologies if it sounds like there's an angry bee every now and then. Yeah, and unfortunately, <laughs> um, there is no more time yeah. to finish this episode before I uh, end up in the Southern Hemisphere. Exactly, exactly. So please do bear with us. We hope it's rather. not too annoying. Yeah. Back to Cormac's sword. Back to Cormac's sword. So it's a story that tells about one of Cormac's hostages. Uh, again, you had hostages as a part of treaties that you had with other uh, kingdoms and alliances and so on. And this particular one is called Sucht, and he has a nice big shiny sword. I think it said it shone like a candle at night, and various other wonderful things it could do. Or it could do brilliant stuff, yeah. can't it? Yeah. Um, but one of Cormac's stewards, one of his household staff, wants this sword, and he offers to buy it off Sucht, but Sucht says, no, I can't sell the sword because I'm the son of a living father. Now, this is Mac Beo Athar, uh, which literally means son of a living father, and it's one of the sort of very common classes of people within the law texts that can't make contracts on their own behalf. So it's showing this particular point of <laughs> yes, the law. This head and of status. family stuff, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think the Romans had similar problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the first bit. Now, the steward goes on sort of trying to buy or somehow purloin this. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely, this sword. Um, which Sucht also says is an heirloom, so, you know, he's not inclined to sell it. Um, but what the steward does one night is he gets Sucht uproariously drunk. He tells the cupbearer to pour the booze into him. And once he's passed out, he takes the sword, goes to the brazier, and he gets the brazier to open up the hilt of the sword and write his own name in it, write the steward's name into it, and then seal it up again. So he's done this, and a few months go by, he still can't get the sword off sucked. Mm -hmm. And so eventually he takes him to court. Basically, he sues him, saying, this is my sword, and you've taken it without my permission. So the court case begins, and of course Cormac is the king, so he's sitting as judge. But he does talk to his um, Olive, his legal advisor, uh, who's Fethel, and they both hear this case. So, first of all, Sucht says, you know, this is my sword, it's an heirloom, and I don't know what he's on about. And then the steward says, well, he's just given a false oath, because my name is written in that sword, and if you open up 
you'll see it written there. So they call for the brazier, they open it up, and they see his name. Sure enough, it's there. Exactly. And that is said to be an occasion where a dead thing or an inanimate thing overswore a living thing. That because the object had the steward's name written on it, that is seen as overswearing the sworn testimony. Of and such. why I think this is significant mm. is that this is almost like a precedent case mm. where the written word yeah. has more power yeah. than the spoken, spoken word. Exactly. And I think this is why I wanted this one included. Yes, yeah. And why perhaps it's included in this, in this particular text. text because yeah. it is a precedent. Yes, yes, it certainly is. This isn't to say, I mean, you know, that people were perfectly literate. Mm. They <clears> could read, right? They made yeah. records. They wrote stories. Yeah. They collected things. We get, you know, just because we talk about this is all society yeah. doesn't mean that they weren't aware of writing exactly or illiterate mm. but it wasn't a prime import exactly. prime importance yeah it didn't have the authority it was the spoken sworn oath that had the authority in most cases here yeah the inanimate thing yeah the written word yeah has more authority exactly but go on finish the story yeah um so obviously then cormac judges that the sword belongs to the steward and not to sucht um, but Sucht, at this point, he kind of turns the tables. He says, okay, that's fine, I give it up, the sword is yours. Do you accept that it's yours and that you have responsibility for it? The steward says, yes, I do, this is my sword and I have responsibility for it. And then Sucht turns around and he goes, well, that's interesting, because this sword was found in the neck of my grandfather and none of us knew who had killed him. And now that you say <laughs> it's your sword, obviously you're responsible <laughs> or your family is responsible for having killed him. So then he's suddenly up on a murder charge and Cormac says, oh, this is really serious and you have to pay him a full blood fine, yeah. uh, which is, you know, the seven couples is worth more than that sword is. So then the steward backs down and confesses what he did and they bring in the brazier and he testifies and says, yes, I helped him to do this. We were cheating. Yeah. So both the brazier and the steward are then fined um, for uh, the false testimony, essentially, wasting co the court's time. It's a twist in the tale, There's another <laughs> twist. There's yet another twist. Now that the steward has said, this is my sword and I'm responsible for it, even though I cheated, Cormac says, well, this is also Cúchulain's sword, as we know from this piece of poetry. He quotes the poetry. And it's the sword that killed my grandfather, <laughs> Concade Cothic. So now you're responsible for that as well. So on top of the actual blood fines and the, you know, perjury charges and now murder charges, now the steward also has to give up the sword to Cormac. And Cormac's is very pleased with this. He says, right, it's my sword now, and you are all in prison, and uh, I've won the day. Poor Socks. I know, I he's know. still, although he wins the case, he, yeah. gets the blood, he gets the price for the sword. Yeah. Because he gets the blood fine yeah. for his grandfather. Yeah. He still loses the sword. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Which is this great family heirloom ever since it was found in his grandfather's neck. So, yeah, it's this wonderful kind of description of a case. Now... Within the official law texts, we don't have, if you like, a record of a real-life court case. But we do have stories like this, which give mythological precedent for particular kinds of judgments and examples of how to run <coughs> a particular kind of case. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's got all these specific legal points about, you know, being a son of a living father and a dead thing that overswears a living thing. But also, right the way throughout, there's quotations of legal maxims. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one saying something like falsehood doesn't stand for falsehood, something like that. Um, and also then Cormac quotes poetry to back up 
um, his claims. So he's using the same obscurities, yeah, which have just been thrown out as old-fashioned. Exactly. And of course, he's also uh, c consulting and working hand in hand with his with his other with his other. Exactly. Yeah. So in a way, it feels like it's you know an older story. Maybe it has been inserted into this text because of the power of the inanimate object and particularly the written the written, written word evidence. Yeah. And you were saying that now, you know, that that that, that it, you need both evidence uh written evidence yeah. and, uh, and knowledge of knowledge the law. of the law. Exactly. It's it is a change. I mean this yeah. is recognizably modern. Uh yes, it certainly is, yeah. There is so much in this text. Mm. <laughs> Nowadays we so depend. Nothing means anything oh, unless yeah. it's written exactly. down. Exactly. It's the whole have you got that in writing? Yeah, but I keep you know, in terms of teaching, I'm always talking to teachers, you know, you want evidence, you want a record. Yeah. You don't have to write things down. Yeah. And I come across the most awful situations mm. where you have um, textbooks that children are given. Yeah. And this is the oral part page. Yeah. Go and write down the answer. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then you go to the written page. Yeah. It's as if they don't trust the oral. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's now seen as unreliable. Yeah. You know. So that there is a sadness to yeah. that as well. Yeah. Now we've got a strimmer. Yeah. <laughs> really sorry to everybody, but there's nothing we can do today. Exactly. We, you know, we're, we're not recording at my house where it's quieter yeah. because of time issues. Mm. So I'm sorry. We're just going to have to put up with it. Yeah. Anyway, back to Irish law. We can't do this text justice in this no, episode. No, no. You will have to go off and read it because it really is a fascinating text and it does have little stories like this everywhere. Um, and of course, the subject of early Irish law is vast. And once yeah. again, we can heartily recommend Fergus Kelly's Guide to Early Irish Law for a really very readable and comprehensible overview of the whole Put system. Put a link to the book on the Exactly, website. yeah. There's... You know, we do need to... Yeah, and to actually get to Cormac's, Cormac's actual cup. <laughs> that's what's coming next. Yeah, finally. So this is the story of how Cormac McCart yes. got his cup. Yes. Now, when I tell this story, and it's one of my, as I said at the beginning, it's mm. one I tell with children and family audiences so yeah. often, I always started off that Cormac McCart was a legendary king of Ireland. Now, being legendary is a pretty tough thing to do, but much worse was the headache that Cormac had that morning. Yeah, but, well, we'd better stick yeah. to the text in this case and to, you know, the Stokes' edition and translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one starts off one morning in May, and Cormac is out on the ramparts or the terraces of Tara, this moor or whatever. Um, and then he sees a stranger coming towards him, and he's a sedate, grey-haired warrior. He's well described, so maybe you can read some of the okay. description of him. A purple-fringed mantle was around him, a shirt ribbed and gold-threaded next to his skin. He had two blunt shoes of white bronze beneath his feet and the earth and a branch of silver with three golden apples on his shoulder. Yeah. Now, it's a lovely description, as you would expect. It puts me in mind of the part of the Tuchfer Gaidina, the Wing of Eighteen, where Yochadarov goes out again onto the Muir Tever, onto the, the ramparts of Tara, and sees this strange warrior coming towards him to play a game of Fichel. And, of course, that's Mither, who's you know going to eventually win Aideen back. Uh, well, in this case, our stranger has this wonderful branch of mm. silver with three golden apples. Now, yeah. the Grady, the, the modern version, gives nine. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. And uh, when he shakes this branch, even the sick could have got healing sleep, yeah. listening to the sound of it play. It's a bit like our wonderful tuned... Um, Wind giants. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I do like that. There's this 
acknowledgement, um, not just here but elsewhere, that sleep is essential for good health. Um, and in fact, it comes into Tegaskill Cormac, into the, the you know, wisdom teachings of, <clears throat> of Cormac McGart. So, you know, it's a theme that I like, <laughs> put it that yes, way. Make sure you get enough sleep. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, not too much, but yep. get enough. Yeah. The stranger introduces himself, but he actually doesn't give his name. No, he doesn't. Uh, but I love what he says. Mm. I come from a land where there is naught save truth. There is neither age, nor decay, nor gloom, nor sadness, nor envy, nor jealousy, nor hatred, nor haughtiness. <laughs> it's not so with us, said Cormac. <laughs> um, how about an alliance? Yeah. <laughs> but I like that. He gives all those things yeah. and he goes, well, it's not like that here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, you could be useful to me. Yeah, definitely. Well, as a sort of a, a see to seal this alliance, this treaty between the, the two leaders, uh, Cormac does get given the apple branch, the silver branch with the golden apples and um, there's an understanding that the, the stranger the leader from the other side will come and ask things of his new allies and Cormac in the future he that, says that's implicit isn't exactly, it exactly that he he says he'll come back and ask for three boons and that's fine you know that's what happens when you're allied with someone reciprocal process exactly so that's where Cormac is at this stage I suppose we, before we go any further we ought to mention that modern O'Grady text just yeah. because it's an interesting comparison to see how it became a folktale that came oh, down yeah. in time yeah. and there are a few differences mm. I, I love the bit this time it's a young man who turns up with a yeah. branch and yeah. Cormac says hey it looks good would you sell it and the young man goes oh I never had anything I wouldn't sell <laughs> and so when Cormac asks for the price the mm. young man without ah, just quite boldly says well I'll swap it for your wife and your two children yeah and Cormac goes, okay. Yeah. Takes a brunch. Yeah. Now, whether this is some lost feeling that this is a great test and he has yeah. to put his kingship first and as his family second, but uh, or whether it's some sort of almost reminiscent of Abraham and Isaac, yeah. and it's a test. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it reads terribly. Yeah, but then so does the story of Abraham and Isaac. God says, "Sacrifice your son." Abraham goes, "Okay." Yeah, you know, know, if you say so, yeah. I will. And here, the you know, the, the guy turns up from the other world and yeah. says, "Yeah, I'll swap this for your family." And he goes, "Okay." Yeah. Right. We better go back to the Stokes <laughs> version. Yeah. But here, the branch, the gift of the branch, it, it seals the treaty. Yeah. Now, in all the list of the wonderful um, qualities of the other world, yeah. This time, um, being without sin, no original sin is not mentioned at all. That yeah. one's left out. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose that since now, by the time of this text, Christianity is strongly established. Yeah. It's not surprising. Exactly. So it's it's no longer noteworthy in that sense. Um, but when Cormac takes this branch and he goes back to his household and he shakes the branch and everyone falls asleep for a whole 24 hours. I suppose that gives him time to get rid of his headache. Well, yeah. And no horrifying his family. No, no, no. There's no no sort of wife selling in this particular story. Yeah, I love the way when Judy goes home in the, that version yeah. and she says, that, oh, I like the branch. And yeah. he goes, yeah, I swapped it. Oh, do you pay a good price for it? Mm. Oh, yeah, he says, I swapped it for you and the children. And she goes, oh, that's yeah. Surely you're joking, aren't you? And he yeah. goes, No, I'm not joking. Deal's mm. done. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. But he does, in that case, he just shakes the branch and everyone forgets about it. Yeah, you know? and they go off quite happily. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to so, the text. Yeah, so back to our Middle Irish version. Um, after a year, the stranger, the warrior, comes into the house and, you know, 
like we said, this would be expected. And, you know, Cormac might be expecting things like that he should give him 50 horses or some fancy metalwork or even, you know, military support. Yeah, like he made Mither and Aidy. Exactly, yeah, the kind of things that Mither gave to Yokodaro. But, but instead, uh, what the stranger asks oh, for... It's Alva, the daughter. Exactly, exactly. Shocking, yeah. Yeah, well, it's... Maybe not so shocking at the time. You know, obviously, it's not nice for us to think of, you know, women being bartered, but that was the way things were done. And so, yeah, it wouldn't have been uncommon for um, part of an alliance to be marrying the king's daughter. You know, it's it's another way of sealing the treaty. So off he goes with Alva, and, you know, that's the end. That one, there's a bit of weeping and wailing from the women of the household. Um, but once again, the branch is shaken. They all get a good night's and sleep. And they get a good night's <laughs> sleep out of it, yeah. It's interesting, only the women need soothing. Yeah. Uh, we're not saying that women were always treated fairly no. in this story. They're not. No. But they do have rights, as we've frequently seen. Exactly, exactly. It wasn't a completely one-sided It's system. just sometimes surprising. Anyway, yeah. month later, it's the son who's taken in the same way. Yeah. And this time, there is weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, <laughs> yeah. and nobody sleeps. Exactly, yeah. And then Cormac shakes the branch, exactly. and they all forget about it. Yeah. But the next time that the stranger comes back, what he wants is... Cormac's wife, Ethna Toiv, other Ethna, the long side. And this is the final straw. Cormac isn't having it. So after the stranger has gone with his wife, uh, Cormac goes out onto the Moor Tavar and the ramparts of Tara uh, to follow which way he's gone. And the entire household gets up and follows him out there. <laughs> When I tell the story, I have him trying to sneak out yeah. to escape people. Yeah. But of course, he's king and they all have to follow him. Exactly. It just makes a good bit of business with kids. But, yeah, uh, and that's exactly what happens in is. this version. Yeah, so the whole household get up and, and follow Cormac out onto the ramparts. But then a great mist descends and uh, no one can see anyone else. And when it lifts, Cormac discovers himself all alone and on a mysterious great plain. Without a ticket. <laughs> okay, okay. But it's very cinematic. It, it is, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Scene. Well, anyway, on this great plain, Cormac sees a great fortress and it's got a bronze wall all the way around it. And when he goes inside, he sees this whitish silver house that's kind of half thatched with the feathers from white birds. And quite striking. Yeah, it is this very strong image. There's also a host of horsemen all around it, and they all have armfuls or lapfuls of these white feathers. And they're trying to touch the house, but every time they get half the roof on and go to put more feathers, the first half of the thatch blows away in the wind. And Cormac kind of goes, mm, they could be at this for quite a long time, and so he moves on. It's an interesting image of thatching, uh, thatching a house on horseback. Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> I don't think it's literal, but yeah. it's just so visual. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then as he wanders away, uh, he comes to another place where there's a man trying to burn a whole tree. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, he's, I think he's burning it whole, isn't Yeah, he? yeah. Well, he's, try he's trying to make a fire and uh, has a whole tree. Yeah. And it's setting fire. And he goes to get another one to keep mm. the fire going. And by the time he gets back with the second tree, mm. the first completely consumed. Yeah. And Cormac looks at this and says, oh, you're going to be at this for a while. Yeah, yeah. And decides that this is futile and wanders away. Yeah. Now, there's a feeling that he and the audience mm. know that these wonders are symbolic. Exactly. Um, 
metaphors and yeah, allegories. Yeah. And they're they're not explained here, but it you know, it's implicit that the audience are going to expect to have their guesses confirmed or denied. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's it's a very kind of, you know, good narrative tension and a good way of setting up the expectations of your audience as well. Well after this Cormac arrives at yet another fortress, although I think it's sort of bigger and shinier maybe. It also has a wall of bronze, but inside there are four great white houses. He sees, as well as these white houses, the great palace in the middle of it, and it's beautifully described as having beams of bronze and wattling of white silver. And this again, the roof is thatched with the wings of white birds. Very beautiful. It is, yeah. Uh, but best of all, in the garth of the fortress, oh, I do love that word, yeah. garth and garden. Yeah. It just sounds so good. Yeah. It's one of your favourites too, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, it's about the sort of the, the separation of a space, often for learning, as we talked about with the, the Nevers. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, gardens are always this very interesting space. It's that yeah. negotiation. Garth and garden, enclosure. Uh, yeah, and and the growing exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's just nice. Words. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, we find this wonderful fountain with its five streams, and around it are the familiar nine hazels. Yes. And the yellow nuts dropping into the water to be eaten by five salmon. Yeah. Now here we have a much loved and very familiar poetic image. Absolutely, and I think it's it, its appearance here kind of shows us just how central it was. I mean, when we came across it in the story of Shinnan, you know, it really was the source for that poetic inspiration, you know, that, that was so central to having, you know, having a complete set of arts or learning. And so it's going to be familiar to the audience. It's obviously, you know, something that is much loved. It also tells us we're at the heart of the story. Exactly, yeah. It is this is central, image. yeah. Once Cormac actually goes into this wondrous palace, uh, there is this tall couple who are there waiting to greet him. There's the comely warrior and there's a fair lady. Yeah, there's an odd section here, isn't mm. there? It's hard to make it out exactly because even Lady Gregory gives up on one point. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, and she follows Stokes very closely. Mm. What we're told is that this woman, this beautiful woman, her feet are being washed without being observed. Yeah. It's just completely obscure and you can't really make it out. It is odd, but it does go on to say that the water is being heated for this bath without the need for any attendance. It says that the hot stones are kind of moving of their own accord from the fire into the water in order to heat it. And then out again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hot running water. Yeah. yeah. Now that is a significant one. <laughs> it is rather, yeah. Um, I was wondering as well, though, about, you know, whether there's something in this, you know, the woman having her feet washed or bathing and whether this might be another element to women's hospitality, along with that symbol of the dispensing of drink. I mean, after all, in the voyage of Maeldun, when they were approaching the island of women, what they saw was all the girls preparing a bath, and Maeldun says, that bath's for us. Yeah, can't you know? wait. Yeah. So I wonder whether this is, you know, another element to that kind of, mm. you know, sensual gift of hospitality, yeah. if you like. It's the hot water and the being bathed. Cormac gets a hot bath. He does, yeah. And probably needs it at this stage. <laughs> so now we finally get to the sequence, which I think is at the centre of the story, which is a storytelling scene. Into the palace now uh, comes a big man from outside. He's got a big wood axe in one hand. He's got a massive club or log uh, in the other hand and trotting along behind him is a pig and the host uh, the sort of stranger the warrior calls for a feast to be made and so this forester character well he kills the pig makes a fire and puts the pig in the cauldron yes the cook who 
I kind of see as being the same as, as the, the forester. Yeah, person. he sort of provides the food. He comments that it's useless trying to, you know, turn the pig in the cauldron or light a fire under it because it will only be cooked if four truths are said around it. One to cook each quarter of the pig. Very cinematic. You just see him standing there, right? Okay. Yeah. That's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get anywhere like that. Yeah. We reach the first true, true story in this forester cook yeah he gives the story he tells the story of how he got the pig and the axe and the log which yeah. is sort of like one unit exactly he says that cattle strayed into his land one day and uh therefore he's entire you know he gathered up the cattle and when the uh the farmer came to get the pig the, the pigs the the cattle, cattle back mm. he sort of says well what are you going to give me for them yeah so he says all right you can have this axe this log and this pig and apparently they work only if used together yeah. and will continually feed the whole palace. Yeah. And as soon as he finishes telling that story, one quarter of the pig is cooked. Yeah. Now, I thought it was very interesting that this starts off with essentially a description of distraint, which is, you know, one of the basic legal practices, which is that, you know, if someone offends you, then you can essentially kind of take hold of their property temporarily. Mm. And the longer they leave it before they... Uh, give redress then the more of that property becomes forfeit and the more fines they have to pay so even at that beginning if you've just taken the cattle into to distraint then the owner of the cattle still needs to pay you for their upkeep so if cattle get on your land yes you're entitled to hang on to them yeah. until you get under yeah right i know uh, that would be really useful yes. sometimes yes i know i know <laughs> you see what these cattle have done to my garden yeah the next story that's told anyway is the story that the host himself tells and he gives this description of how you know they wanted to uh, grow wheat out in a field in the palace and when they thought about going out to plough it it was suddenly already ploughed when they thought about sowing it it was already sown when they wanted to harvest it it was already harvest harvested and then put into ricks and was feeding them continuously to this day and lo another quarter of the pig is cooked now are there any legal issues here I don't think so. I mean, it did put me in mind of Brescia's bargaining at the end of Moitura and the three three mark, the three Tuesday. Oh, yeah. when, when do we plough, uh, when, when do we sow, when, when do we reap? reap? Yeah. So it did put me in mind of that, you know, about the sort of the rightness of when and how to do things, you know. I, I just feel that it's just a description of the other world, this mm. world of eternal summer. Exactly, That it's yeah. a way of, of just communicating yeah. one aspect of this old story. Yeah. This is a place where this sort of thing happens. Exactly, where you, you can get as much food as you need and there's no need for work. And it's true. Yeah. A bit like the uh, bathing without exactly. the servants. Yeah. Well, now we come to the, the woman's tale. Mm. And this is quite a simple one. She's got seven cows and seven sheep and they give enough milk for everyone in the land of promise mm. and enough wool to clothe them all. Yes. So, And the third court is cooked. Yes. Now, I just feel... Again, it's what you'd expect in yeah. the land of promise. Yeah, but I think it's it's maybe interesting that uh, the woman's domain is, if you like, the dairy and managing the, the sheep and textiles, which is consistent with the early Irish law and status mm -hmm. text. The man's, the host's uh, domain is the sort of the arable farming, the you know, the crops. And then we have this sort of huntsman cook. Who's, who goes out to bring in both firewood and probably hunting wild boar as well. So each profession has its its own area, its own area exactly. of expertise, yeah. its own areas area of responsibility. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of fits the text, I yeah. suppose. We've got three quarters of the pig cooked yeah. by now. Yeah, I don't know whether it's 
each quarter completely cooked. Yeah, yeah. Or whether or it is now three quarters, quarters cooked. Done. Yeah. <laughs> That's not clear. Yeah. But um, Cormac then tells his own story and yeah. the tale of how his wife and son and daughter have taken and he's followed them here and he will not leave until he gets them back, etc. Yeah. And that boils the last quarter of pig. Exactly. Or it's now fully, fully cooked. cooked. Yeah, yeah. So the pig is taken out cooked and uh, they start to carve it. But then Cormac comes back with another one. He says that he never eats a meal without 50 in his company. <laughs> he probably says it with a sort of wry smile. Well, yeah. yeah, I never eat alone, you know. Yeah. I never get a chance. <laughs> Possibly, but that's not how it's... No, I know. It's just how you feel. Yeah, exactly. But what happens then is that the host sings him to sleep, which is a nice little aside. And when Cormac wakes up again, there's his vanished household retinue who followed him out onto the ramparts of Tara. And, of course, his wife, Ethna, his son, Carbara, and his daughter, Alva, all there with him. And, of course, as we've seen, 50 is a kind of symbolic number. Exactly, for, for a company. Yes, exactly. Well, then he sort of, uh, at the feast, when they're having a great time, mm. he admires the host's golden cup. Mm. It's workmanship yeah. and patterns. Yeah. And he's sort of shown how it works. Mm. Because this is Cormac's cup. Or it will be shortly. Now, as Cormac is admiring this wonderful piece of workmanship, um, his host explains to him that it's not just a pretty thing, that it has an even more wondrous secret. And that is that if three falsehoods are uttered, that the cup will break into three pieces, and it can only be reunited if three truths are told to it. And so he demonstrates this. It doesn't specify what lie he tells, but obviously it's some kind of a whopper and the thing falls into three pieces. But guys made of spaghetti. Exactly, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, but in order to put it back together, what he says is that his wife, Cormac's wife and daughter, haven't seen a man since they've been there, and that his son hasn't seen a woman. And that reunites the cup and, of course, obviously reassures Cormac that his family have been kept safe. Now, it's interesting, in the late O'Grady version, mm. it's Mananan who breaks the cup into four by saying that the wife has had another husband. Yes, yeah. And then his wife repairs it mm. by saying, no, 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 they've only seen their own selves. Yes, yeah. They've been together as a family mm. and nobody else. Mm. And the cup's made whole again. Yeah. And I must admit, I quite like that version mm. because... You just sort of feel that this is this is the land of promise, yeah. and the cup should be given by a woman. Yeah, yeah. And here you've got the hint that that feels right. Yeah, yeah. So in the folk version, mm. it survived with that yeah. feeling that it's the woman who gives it. Exactly. And after all, earlier in this text, when it described the vessel of Bathern, it's mm. actually Bathern's wife. Mm. In Thai glass time, the cup was given by Cleona. You know, mm. so it does seem that there's just some little. Hiccup so the, the 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 oral retelling, mm. the folk version, has kind of automatically reversed it yeah. back to what it should sort of feels right to yes. me. Yeah. That's the only reason I mention it. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, it's time to go home. Yes. Um, their host says, well, now you've got your wife, you've got your kids. Take this uh, cup for being able to tell the truth from a lie and the silver branch for just music and delight and off you go home with you now. And then the big reveal he says, and I am Malinan, though everybody in the audience will have yeah. known it long ago. Exactly. Because, I mean, in the O'Grady version, he says it's Malinan, it says it's Malinan all the way through. Exactly. And I think it's because any audience yeah, will yeah. just know who it was. Yeah, yeah. And that he tells him he's brought him to the land of promise to show him this wonderful place. Exactly, yeah. But also to show him, I suppose was educational videos really because he's going to go on now to explain 
these wonders, the allegories that Cormac saw. Okay then, so what about the house that won't stay thatched? Cormac is told that this is about the men of art of Ireland, that they are gathering to them wealth and cattle, but that they're not, that it just wastes away. So in other words, you know, the poets... Wasting resources. Yeah, the poets are just, you know, taking up our valuable uh, resources and they're not giving anything back to the economy in terms of wealth and so on. And so this seems to be very sort of apt and political in mm. the context of the earlier part of this text, you know, where it's about trying to take some of that power away from the poets. But it also kind of feels very familiar as a sort of political attitude <laughs> where the government goes, you know, well, sure, why are, you know, why do we pay teachers? You know, what have they, what have they ever done for us? You know, how are they contributing to the economy? And, you know, that kind of thing. It just yeah. seems to be a bit like, oh, no, we don't well, need we're those funny we, really, we don't really need the doctors and nurses. No, either. no, What do they not. know? Exactly, uh, yeah. So they're it, just wasting money on yeah. people who are sick. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, especially the ones who live out in the country, they don't have oh, anyway. Oh, God, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We could extend this metaphor quite happily. So, yeah, so that's the, the house that, that's half-fashed with the feathers. It's the basically feathers. political. It is. It's political. And, yeah, it's to reflect the current state of Cormac's mm. kingdom, really. I mean, the, it's interesting. The modern version just says that um, poets and adventurers should stay at home rather than looking for green grass, greener grass or airy ideas. Yeah, which is, you know, a significantly different interpretation. <laughs> and it's at the explaining, if you like, of these wonders that the modern text really does diverge mm. quite significantly. Well, I think it's forgotten the significance. Exactly, exactly. Okay, what about the man burning a tree? Well, this is said to stand for a young lord who spends all of his income basically just on himself and his household rather than managing his lands and his clients and, you know, again, paying out uh, the thief to his clients. Yeah. So it's very much about someone who's just kind of keeping the wealth for themselves and not mm. investing in their property, if you like. But it is giving advice to this new aristocratic government yeah. who now have to take over these roles. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. it's in their own interest to yeah. govern well. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the instructions of Cormac are quite good. Yes, they are. But it, yeah, it's it's a reminder that, you know, just because you're an aristocrat doesn't mean you don't have responsibilities. Mm. You know, that it is a two-way street. The modern version just doesn't make sense. It doesn't really it, it at just, all. It just talks about someone serving food and never getting anything to eat themselves. But Somebody's had a go at it. And yeah, it hasn't really, they know. They, they lack the context. Yeah, the best they and come we, up with is the dinner party problem or the barbecue problem, yeah. you know. Well, it lacks the context in which these original examples were set. Exactly. Now we come to the wonderful poetic hazel fringed well with yeah. five flowing streams. Yeah, it's a very successful image and it's a beautiful image. I think bo both of us have always loved this one. Um, he's told that the well itself is the well of knowledge. Mm. So it's, you know, Segish and what have you. That's recognised. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that the five streams that flow out from it are the five senses. And he's told that, you know, the men of many arts, so Ildornic if you like, are those that drink both from the well itself and from all five streams. That makes sense in terms of philosophy and poetry. Exactly. That, you know, as well as, if you like, the sort of the abstract stuff from the well itself, that you have to have that connection to the real world, you know, that sort of observation and reflection that comes through sort of the senses. But it has a sort of a, a newer, if you like, or a more specific application in the context of this particular story, which is that it could also represent that for true justice, you have to go to the theory of law, which is from the well itself, the knowledge itself, 
but also take in evidence the sensory empirical evidence and that includes writing mm, of course the yeah. written word as if you like that the inanimate evidence it all hangs together it. doesn't it this it text does. really hangs together well it's it's the the common thread through every part through the bit of the 12 ordeals the assembly of the tower this story and the story of the sword the law is and justice is the common thread mm. now the modern version mm. it's a bit weird it oh, has God. three wells uh, with streams each one has a head in it yeah you know and um there's a different number of streams in and a different number of streams out yeah you know one stream in many streams out yeah many you know, in many and one out. out but when you oh, it's too complicated it's really but awful. if you go through it and look at the number of streams and what happens yeah it's actually retelling the biblical story of the the, the talents the, yeah jesus's parable which basically somebody gets one gets five talents given them as a gift yeah and they make it ten yeah and the next one gets two talents and he doubles his profit to four yeah. but the last one who gets one goes oh i haven't really got enough so he buries it in the ground and jesus says oh how terrible you know yeah. you've wasted your talent yeah but talent was actually it gets confusing it, it totally confused me as a measurement child. yeah exactly it's, it's a, not actually a type of coin yeah it is actually a measurement but it's what they've got here is the last one represents somebody who has lots of opportunities yeah. but only one stream comes out so yeah. they've wasted it all yeah and I think it is influenced by the biblical parable. It's quite confusing, though, that <laughs> section. I have to say, it takes a while to get your head around, you know, how many, what are they talking about now? How many streams Well, it's go not in? very important. No, no. But it is significantly different. And, you know, that really central image of the well and the hazels and the salmon and all the rest of it, which is very much at the core of Irish poetry and mythology, is just gone altogether. Mm, Even the spangled. image is just completely gone. So whereas the idea of the woman giving the cup has yeah. somehow been retained, yeah. and they're going, oh, you see, it survived. Yeah. Yeah. But when you get to this central image, yeah. it hasn't survived. It's just gone which completely. Which is a great pity. It is, yeah. That's yeah. one I would have expected as a storyteller yeah. to have been there whole and complete. Yeah. But in this case, it isn't. Anyway, after that, they all go home with the cup and the branch, and the cup and the branch Cormac keeps till he dies. But and then it disappears. they disappear after mm -hmm. he dies. He doesn't... It, they don't get passed down the line I'm afraid these ones one have gone off back. deal yeah one. yeah yeah so that's Cormac's cup that's the story this is supposed to be a series on Imrama yeah so how does it relate do you think to Imrama well as we've said over and over again and found so often uh, all of the Imrama stories are really about this transition you know and there's the transition between a sort of a native tradition and a Christian mm. tradition and each of the Imrama stories we've looked at has a different take on exactly what the balance and the relationship is. So this is yet another attempt, if you like, to either unify or, you know, describe that relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In story terms, mm. like the in Rama, Cormac also sets up on, on a journey for his own personal purposes. Yeah. But the outcome is directed by a sort of unknown outside agency. Exactly. Mananan, as we've seen, often plays that role. Yeah. And he brings back another world authority for his law. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, it does have a relationship yeah. to Imrama. Yeah. So I suppose if we sort of put together a few general comments about Cormac's cup, as an Imrama style yeah. story. Yeah. It is a journey to the land of promise, mm. but not to an island. No. And similarly, you know, he doesn't meet a series of islands along the way, but what he has are the wonders on his journey, which then, you know, have to be understood and explained yeah. later. And I know when I was sort of trying to write an article that was a look at uh, the Imrama as a type of, you know, in the context of a broader set of stories, yeah. which is how I put it. And I mentioned 
The Pilgrim's Progress by yes. John Bunyan. And mm. once again, uh, that's what I called a dry land Nimrod. Yeah. And uh, it has wonders on the way, and they're allegorical yeah. as well, just like this one. Yeah, so a very similar flavour to it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's comparing something that isn't an Imrov with something that isn't an Imrov. <laughs> you know. But it isn't an Imrov <clears throat> in the same way. <laughs> yeah, all right. Imrov-style stories. Yeah, 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 that's the best you can do. Yeah. The destination for Cormac, it's not an Isle of Women or the Land of Women. But he is greeted by a couple. There is both a host and a hostess, you know, a bit like uh, Tig was encountering in his journey. Um, and we did say about how there's just this little feeling that it, the cup should have been given by the woman to Cormac as it was in the story of Batherin and in the story of Tig. Mm. You know, so again, we talked before about how it's particularly the land of women that gets eroded as the Imrova go on oh very clear yeah so you know again this is another step on that journey if you like mm, until finally i'm afraid the women the desire of women is almost demonized exactly yeah yeah it's the most dangerous mm-hmm. and frightening yeah. and uh, <gasps> sinful yeah exactly you can make a case for the mist standing in front of the sea yeah it has the same purpose mm. i mean it sets cormac in story terms anyway it sets cormac adrift from his people mm. so that he ends up lost in an unfamiliar environment exactly. so serving the same purpose yeah yeah I and unfamiliar waters, yeah. Now, I mean, this isn't by any means intended as an Imrov tale, you know. It is generally referred to as Echtra Cormac, you yeah. know, so it's the adventure. It's not an Imrov in that sense at all. It is a late Middle Irish text, and therefore later than the official Imrov texts, you know. It's But it's perhaps quite close to a text like Tide McCain, mm. and it's definitely, I think, influenced by stories like the story of Bran, oh, especially, Conla. and Conla, the Echtra Conla as well. Or maybe so, Oisin as well. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there there are, again, plenty of similar tales that seem to have fed into this. Well, it sort of fits. You've got yeah. these other tales of people going to the Land of Promise. So yeah. I think maybe Cormac should go as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think possibly we've lost the original story, which is Bathon's vessel. Yeah, exactly. Or his missus's vessel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lost story there. Yeah, definitely. There's one more thing that I'm increasingly feeling is a, an interesting question, if yeah. not a problem. Mm. You see, here we've got Cormac going out onto the plain, mm. being surrounded by a mist, and he finds himself in another world. Yeah. This is more like Ectronera. Yes. Yeah. And it's this underground world mm. of, that is, it's the home of Miver. Exactly. This is where Miver comes from, always. Yes. He is the, known as the the king of the, the she king of the she mounds. Yeah. And he has this absolutely wondrous realm. Mm. And he appears exactly like Mananal appears in this story. Yes, yeah. There's no hint of Cormac going over the sea. No, which is where you would expect to have to go to meet Mananon as the son of yeah. the sea. So and yet he goes to the land of promise. Yeah. Which yeah. is is Mananan's realm. Yeah. And it's clearly people have gone, Yeah, it's Mananan. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But I wonder whether it is part of a shift that's happening and it's part of that same shift that changes the adventure to the other world from being on land to being over sea. Yeah, I think it becomes untenable yeah. on land. Exactly. For yeah. two reasons. One, it clearly isn't. Yes. People start to, you know, they, yeah. that's why the story is always digging up the mountains. Yeah, the I know. Of, yeah. you know the, and the other thing is that the underground has got two associated with hell yeah exactly so Christian, it yeah. doesn't quite fit anymore yeah and so the land of promise which is you know obviously a happy place has to be somewhere else so mm. over the sea is the best place for it so yeah but again there's this very interesting problem about the role 
of yeah. first Mither and then Manila. Yeah, you see, Mither is, I feel that he's really been badly treated. Yeah, yeah. Because he was originally, his home was in the heart of Ireland. Absolutely, at Breleth. In Longford. In Longford, yeah. And people keep saying, whatever comes out of Longford, well, yes, there is a lot of site here. <laughs> Absolutely. Breleth is an important site, but there's yeah. nothing there mm. that doesn't seem to be any archaeology. Mm. It is really odd you've got this mystery of Brilair. Yeah. There's a story of this destruction and the destruction yeah, of the trees. Exactly, yeah. In this place of trees. Yeah, yeah. And that's at the end of Mither and Aideen and on a couple of the Dinhenicus poems around there. And then of course there's got that this lost story. Yeah, lost story. One of the many tales that we don't have at the moment in text, which is it's supposed to be the exiles of Brilair. Just this hint that mm. some reason, yeah, the whole power, yeah, structure, and this missing centre place exactly. that goes along with Rathcrohan, yeah, and uh, Tara and Ishnuk, and Ishnuk, yeah. there was also Brila, and yeah. somehow it's gone, yeah. And of course, we've commented many times on you know the the lack of stories about Mither when he is so central, particularly, obviously, to the story of Aideen. And his you know. name yeah. means the judge. Exactly. We have lost a whole set, I feel, yeah. of it, stories yeah. and ideas. And it should have been Mither, yeah. who's giving Cormac his cup. Exactly. But all this power mm. centres in man and It needs looking into it a does. lot more. Yeah, and yeah. I really want to do it. We yeah. will return to this. Yeah, this is something where we, we've been gathering the, the fragments of evidence as we go along, and it just gets stronger and stronger. Yeah, but in fact, man has taken on yeah. a lot of the role of Mither. Yeah. Just fascinates me, yeah. this stuff. What have we found about Cormac and as an Imrama? We have said about this transitional nature and you know it's about transitions between you know a non-christian and a christian world a transition between this world and the other world that other world itself is in transition between being a sort of underworld and being over the seas we've got this post-norman exactly in terms of the law irish and continental christianity Christianity. yes yeah so and this text is an absolutely you know prime example of all of these kind of issues and this really transitional moment which comes of course yeah. with the transition of the language as well. I can't help feeling, I'm writing, yes, but yeah. I can't help feeling that although yes if I had to vote for it I would vote for it, <laughs> you know, yes, yeah, the yeah. thing, this is progress, it has to go this way. Yeah. But suddenly now there's an expectation of miracles and not an encounter of wonders. Yeah, yeah. It does feel like a loss of a kind of imagination, you know, and a kind of creativity. But then I I have the same feeling when I go into a medieval cathedral. Mm. And the utter beauty, yeah. the darkness, the wonder. And yet I know this is brought about by a sort of sense of deep superstition. Yeah. And when you go into a post-Reformation church with mm. its whiteness and its... And I know which oh, I prefer. Yeah, yeah. And yet I approve of the second exactly. rather than the first. Yeah. You know, you've got this real problem. Yeah. And you've got it again here. Exactly. All of this is really very strongly reinforced by the very last paragraph of this text. And it's kind of amusing I think, in some ways, because it goes on to say that even though Cormac was king in Ireland before the coming of Christianity, that all of the great kings and noble leaders had actually been advised by God's angels and, you know, 
through divine intervention. And so even though it's a non-Christian system, that it was still being directed by the hand of and God. And it actually says it was God and the angels, not demons. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. it specifically says, no, no, nothing demonic going on here. You so know. they're going, yeah, it was a good system in spite of its pagan origin. Yeah. And don't worry, it was God's angels. Yeah, that actually they were doing it all along. Yeah, yeah. Yes, in a very Scooby-Doo fashion. <laughs> and um, the shocking revelations. Yes, yeah. after all, we are calling this episode the shocking revelations concerning Cormac. Well, I suppose in the modern version, Cormac's behaviour towards his family yeah. is kind of reprehensible. It is rather. For a monarch who's supposed to represent the highest ideals of kingly behaviour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even in the older version, this complete dismissal of the role of the poets and is quite shocking to us. And yeah, as yeah. we were just saying, this kind of... It's a problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the denial of imagination yeah, is quite that's shocking. Not it. That's not yeah, it. Yeah. The real shock <laughs> is that in the modern version, Cormac McCart lives in Leitrim. <laughs> no, I never expected that No, one. nor did I. That was a bit of a shock, all right. I'm off to Oz for five weeks now, leaving Isolde with two episodes to prepare for publication. Yes, Which is you. why we had to finish today. Yes, exactly, despite the strimming and the mowing and everything else. Now, the next episode, the what our plan is, is to look at all those wonderfully strange prophecies and stories around Mungan. Uh, whom we first encountered back in the first episode oh, the of this child. series when we were looking at the Emerald Bran. Much more complicated text than we expected. No, than you expected, oh, once right. again. <laughs> I <laughs> was going this to be, one's easy. be easy. Yeah, it yeah. But it was absolutely fascinating and I've enjoyed every minute it and is. I hope we've made it as clear as we could. Yep. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.